is the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. Queers. We're talking Delta, Lambda, Zeta. We're talking hi. No, I really mean that. Hi. And we're talking Lori fucking Metcalf. And I'm Joe. And I'm Trace. And we're also talking Omega Beta Zeta. <laughs> Wait, are you the sober sister, Trace? I am the sober sister tonight. I'm so excited. It is my least favorite thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I feel like we've established that over the last year. I know. Oh, God, yes. Um, but yeah, we're talking Scream 2, everybody, for our first, like, actual... I mean, we had an actual episode last week, but this is our first film that we're covering for the new year, and in case you couldn't tell, it's because it's a year... Well, maybe not exactly a year, but it's almost a year after our Scream episode from last year. Mm-hmm. It's our anniversary month, and what better way to kick off 2020 than Scream 2? Which is, as many of you know... What we think is the best entry in the franchise. Both of us think that. So fuck off. Yeah, it's true. It's all downhill from here. Basically, <laughs> we should just wrap the podcast up after this. I will say that there was one piece of information that I found in my research for this movie that I did not know. And I am shocked that I didn't know this. Oh, color me intrigued. It's not really that juicy. It's Honestly, it, it makes the film look worse in comparison. But it's, yeah. it's still fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, keep it to yourself then, fucker. Yeah, it's, no, I mean, it's it's on the Wikipedia. Of course. Everything is on the Wikipedia. Oh, yes. Listeners, we're going to have a lot of information from you. Most of it's from the Wikipedia or they have the lovely IMDb uh, com- uh, fact section. Oh, God. The trivia section of IMDb, which is populated by morons. Um... Also, so many, like, no one's editing these pages because, no. or, like, reading things because, like, some of the facts on that sheet were, like, repeated three times throughout this lengthy-ass list. But, God. yes, the Wikipedia page for this movie is insanely long. I think it might be the longest page I've seen on a movie we've covered thus far. It's because we're not alone. People love this fucking movie. I know. Well, it's the thing. It's like we discussed in Scream last year. Like, this franchise has a very large gay following, and gays love the internet. <laughs> just broad generalization i'm, I'm basing that on love that internet <laughs> <laughs> what do we love we love that dick we love that puzzle we love the internet yep that's it i well, and social media and apparently wikipedia mm-hmm. so but before we get into the meat and potatoes of the perfect slasher sequel Joe, i think we have some things to get off the top really quick Yes, we've got a few pieces of housekeeping. I promise we'll keep this quick because Very we quick. know we're going to run long here. I know. So, uh, <laughs> we teased at the end of last week's episode that we have opened up a merch store. So if people want to get their horror queers on in t-shirt form, in mug form, in like tote bag and weird blanket form, it's there. So there's a link in the show notes if you want to go check that out. Yay! Yay! <laughs> I, I, I know we're, like, touting the shirts and the mugs, but I'm partial to the stickers, because I think they look the best in terms of, like, just how, how they, the final product looks. Oh, there's yes. a pillow, too. The pillow's cool. Uh, I mean, sure. <laughs> I, I don't know what the quality of it's like, but, you know, it's a pillow. Right. It's a pillow with our logo on it, so awesome! <laughs> so, go check those out, and then, you know, tag us in photos if you buy anything, because... We're kind of curious to know if anyone actually does. I know, right? (laughs) 
So uh, update number two, we've got something fun in the works for Oscar season. So last year we were a little bit too young and we didn't know if anyone was actually listening. So we didn't want to do something that required audience participation. Because we didn't want to be embarrassed when no one replied. Exactly. This year, we are totally established. We are not novices anymore. We are on our A-game. So we are opening up something called The Hereditaries. And Trace, in case people don't know, this is our version of the Horror Oscars. And Wait, how did you come up with that name anyway? I mean, you asked me if it was okay, and I honestly just was, I don't care. Like, do whatever you want. But <laughs> Why? So, yes, I came up with this name, and I decided it's because I couldn't think of some version that was clever from Tony Collette, but the way that Hereditary was passed over, and specifically yeah. Tony Collette's performance in that film, a lot of people thought that she was actually going to get awards recognition. She did by a bunch of different smaller guilds. Just not the Oscars. <laughs> not the Oscars, not the Golden Globes. So this is an attempt to acknowledge the fact that the horror genre is often not recognized by these awards, but also to spread some wealth and get to see what people think were the best performances, the best films. Uh, we've got a category for best animal. We've got best oh. death. So the forum is open. We've got links in the show notes again, and as well as on our social media. But we want to hear from you. And you've got two weeks to let us know. You can vote in all the categories or just some. It's up to you. And we're going to be announcing the winners on Oscar Day. I realize also we've been doing a lot of audience participation things since November. Um, so thank you, everyone, for actually participating in the things that we are putting in your face. Yes, this is true. Yeah. Thanks again for all the people who did <laughs> questions for speed dating and the survey responses. This one's a little bit more fun. This is really about you. We want to know what you folks yeah, think. Yeah, it's recognizing the best in horror. It's recognizing things that won't get recognized at the Oscars. A hundred percent. Yeah. Let's not get ourselves. If Tony Collette didn't get nominated, Lupita Nyong'o is not going to get nominated. It's yeah. just a fact. I'm sorry. It sucks. Yeah. So then the third and final piece of update is, obviously, we're talking about Scream today. And we've got our Scream episode from last year, but it's our first episode. And it's very short. It's not in the same format that we've done. So yeah. we thought it would be really fun to kick off our new Patreon tier with a Scream audio commentary. Yay! Yeah, so people who are in the top tier, the final girl tier, you should have access to that right now. But if people are curious to hear us riff on the film throughout the entire film, it's almost two hours long. It's great. It's unedited. We're playing well, drinking games. Wait, wait, wait. It is almost two hours long because the film is an hour and 51 minutes long. <laughs> we didn't just make it two hours long. No, but it's more more of us than you usually get on the podcast. Right. I should point out that before we started, Joe was like, now just remember, it's okay to have silence. You don't have to talk through the whole thing. And we talk through the entire thing. <laughs> yeah, we did. Because <laughs> we are chatty cathies. We are. But it was fun. It's fun. Hopefully, if y'all, those of y'all in the top tier, um, you know, listen to it. Let us know if you like it. And then listen to this episode. Or keep listening to this one and then do the audio commentary. Yeah, they're a good companion to each other, but we just wanted to plug that, that if you, I mean, I think we do a lot of good analysis in that first Scream episode, mm -hmm. but it's not as jokey and fun as we have been in, you know, the intervening months. So if you want to see us make jokes and have a lot of fun with the movie, Scream audio commentary, it's in the top tier of the Patreon right now. Yep. And on that note, I don't know why I always say on that note, like it's... It, is that something you say in your normal life? It's my default transition. I don't know. Okay. It works. 
<laughs> it's fine. Yeah. I'll repeat it at the end of the episode whenever we do the other housekeeping, which will sure. be really quick. Yeah. Okay, let's move on to Scream 2. Never heard of it. I... <laughs> <laughs> again it, it's so it's so weird like just like with that first scream episode like i feel so like intimidated by doing this because again we talk this movie up so much and so like i'm like oh this episode has to live up to it but you know what i don't give a fuck i'm just gonna <laughs> <laughs> i'm just gonna talk about it it's gonna be fine yeah talk about it like you would talk about it with friends because that's really what we're doing yes so okay i think to really understand the brilliance of Scream 2, because this is a brilliant movie, is to really understand the process that went into getting it made and how it should not be a good movie, all things considering mm-hmm. what it went through in the production. It should be a Saw sequel in terms of quality. Well, and you know what's funny is, though, what it reminded me of, and I, I realize we also brought this movie up in the Scream audio commentary, but it was with this year's Black Christmas, or I guess last year's Black Christmas remake. Really, like, it was announced in June. They were, you know, went into production that month. They were done filming after a couple weeks, and then they had it ready by December 13th. This movie, announced in March, but they didn't start filming until June or July of 97, they had it ready by December 12th of 1997. crazy. That is not the way to make a movie. It's not. So, okay, let's just go through this. So, basically, before Scream came out, when Williamson was, um, you know, shopping the script around, he had... Two five-page proposals um, attached to the script for sequels, um, like the little treatment, say, okay, cool, if this movie does well, here's plots for the second and third films. Mm-hmm. And it was just a way to like basically saying, hey, you're not buying one film, you're buying a franchise, which... Yeah, and also, let me write them for you and pay me lots of money. Exactly. And so he was basically contracted for the sequels should Scream be successful, which of course it was, despite, as we discussed in the episode, it being pronounced D-O-A before it had even come out. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> Who releases a slasher in December? Hmm. Yes. Um, and so, well, yeah, counter-programming. Um, but so basically, again, still before Scream came out, there was a test screening for Scream, and the, like, you know, Miramax executives were present, which I, I'm assuming that means Bob and Harvey Weinstein. <laughs> I know. Hate them. After that test screening went, went, I guess, very well, Craven was then contracted for two sequels. Yeah, good call. Lock that down. Yeah. So yeah, you know, Scream, I think opened, I want to say it was like $6 million opening weekend, but then like, it was one of those movies that like, it never really reached the top spot, but it kept doing really well. So mm-hmm. legs and legs and legs, legs and legs and legs. I mean, it, it's really like an unprecedented, not unprecedented, I mean, obviously films have done that before, but it's just not something that's easy to do. No. And really, it's almost unheard of for horror movies, right? Like you hear right? about it for dramas, but not slasher films and not horror films. Exactly. So, January of 97, basically Dimension is like, hey, Scream has made $50 million after a month in release, and we made that movie for $15 million. Let's... <laughs> Let's go ahead with that sequel. <laughs> but it, they don't greenlight it until March of 97. So, I mean, and Scream is still in theaters at this point, mind you. So crazy. So fucking crazy. I think it stayed in theaters through May. Again, I think we went through all this in the episode last year, but, I mean, I didn't really listen to it. No, it's fine. So, yeah, and they give it a budget of $24 million, you know, again, over Scream's $15 million budget. Ooh, so generous. Although, admittedly, for a slasher film, that's pretty well, good. And in 1997, like, $24 yeah. million today is about double that amount. Sure. But the, here's the funny thing. So by this point, Kevin Williamson already had 42 pages of the plot developed, or I guess of the script developed. So he didn't even finish the script yet. <laughs> and they're still targeting for a December 1997 release. This old adage, it's like the way that we uh, the, we treated pop stars at the time, right? It's like, you're basically forgotten if you don't get new product on the shelves a year later. Yeah. And there's a bit of 
uh, conflicting reports. Of, so basically, what I found is that in the original script, there were four different killers. And we can maybe go into more detail about this when we actually get to the ending of the film. <laughs> if we ever get there. Yeah. But, you know, but I'll be brief. So basically, there were there was it was going to be Derek, who's J, uh, Jerry O'Connell, mm-hmm. Hallie, who's Elise Neal, Cotton Weary, who's um, Leah Schreiber, and Mrs. Loomis, who's Lori Metcalf. Yep. Spoilers. Yeah, spoilers. Sorry. If you, haven't seen it, like... <laughs> if you haven't figured it out by now, have you even been listening? <laughs> yeah. So, okay, that's kind of what we got there. Then they begin production in June or July. Again, for some reason, I got I found both. I don't know what the actual month was, but maybe it was like the end of July, or early June. Who knows? Yeah, that sounds about right. But this is, hey, and maybe we discussed a movie that had this, or maybe I'm just thinking of Scream 2, but this is one of the first films. Oh, no, I was thinking of Blair Witch Project and how like that was like the first film to really use internet marketing, or maybe even Curse, actually. No, not, it's fine. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to cut all that out. I'm like cracked out on coffee. It's fine. <laughs> so the script leaked on the internet. And they hit 1997 internet, and if you've watched this movie, you will see that the internet <laughs> in 1997. I, know. <laughs> I love it. Love it. I mean, it's like a lot of black screen with just green font like that's just <laughs> looks like the matrix <laughs> it looks so funny but that's what that's where we were 23 years well it was really 22 years ago oh yeah like a home computing people didn't have their own computers i remember my family had a computer for the entire family and it was located in the living room and we had dial-up so people couldn't use the phone at the same time as we were surfing oh yes yes i i remember that fucking god-awful sound of aol like logging in that do that's actually not what it is but it's fine (laughs) (laughs) but yeah i mean it's kind of funny to think about it a script leak would not have been the same as what it would be nowadays but it was considered so bad and detrimental to the production that they asked kevin williamson to scrap the ending and come up with a completely different plot (laughs) which if you listen to our curse episode he had to do in that movie too Results may vary. That one didn't turn out quite so well. No, 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 no. Um, but I, th- I think the thing with Curse was, though, it was reshoots after most of the movie was done. Whereas yeah. this movie, it wasn't reshoots. They were, like, rewriting the movie as it was being filmed. So, yeah. Which, again, typically means that the film is going to become shit. And to be fair, there are detractors for this movie. Like, some people, it's their least favorite in the franchise, which I don't understand. But <sighs> to each their own. Sure, yeah. Again, your average Joe Blow, like, let's say fucking You've Got Mail had a script leak. Like, no one's going to give a shit about that, no. you know? But because the success of this movie depends on, it's a whodunit, you know? Who yeah. is the killer or killers? And I think I think that's really what made, the, part of what made the first one so successful, obviously outside of the Drew Barrymore, like, shocker. Right. And if you look at the marketing for Scream 2, they did a really good job. Because mm-hmm. it, it it's like a super cut when it's like... um. It has Randy going, oh, let's look at all the suspects. And then it, like, just just a super cut of every single character <laughs> Every in the single person in the fucking movie. <laughs> <laughs> and it really does feel that way. Like, when I did the rewatch for this movie, I was kind of shocked at the number of times where it really does seem like they could be pointing the finger at pretty much anybody. Like, I remember watching this and never thinking that Rebecca Gayhart or Portia de Rossi could be the killers, but they were intended to be red herrings. Yeah. Wes Craven says so on the audio commentary. I think, and you might know if this is true or not, but I think they probably had more screen time in the original draft or something because their role feels reduced. 
Uh, yeah. Okay, so I did read that original script. It is floating around there. People want to check it out. And it has the reveal with the four killers. And let me tell you, it is not handled well. (laughs) But uh, I didn't read through it in a lot of detail. I just kind of skimmed the first part to see what was different. It does seem like they had a little bit more of a presence. But that's because more of that original film was set at the sorority house. Everything in the in the finale was actually set outside or around the sorority house. They didn't oh, actually go into the theater. That's that's weird. I also mm-hmm. wonder if like the four killers, if it was because like Williamson was like, oh, two, double everything. And we had two killers in the first movie. Let's right. have four killers in the second movie. Well, it kind of makes sense when you think about the way Randy talks about the sequel rules, right? Right. Well, and we'll talk because again, like we'll we'll go into the flaws of this movie, and there's a couple that don't bother me, but I know there's like one particular subplot that's dropped yes. <laughs> almost immediately as it's brought up. That and they acknowledge people. it as well. Yeah, no, they totally do. <laughs> but yeah, so basically, this script leak, Williamson had to do extensive rewrites, changing the finale, obviously changing the killers, altering the roles of Randy and Joel because Joel was supposed to die. Joel is um Dwayne Martin, who is Courtney Cox's cameraman. I believe he was supposed to die in the original film. Uh, original is, script. Yep. I don't know. Was Randy supposed to die or not supposed to die? Uh, I can't recall, but That's I know okay. that he becomes Gale's cameraman for like the duration of the rest of the movie. Oh, that's that's kind of cool, actually. It sort of makes sense, but it also weirdly positions a person who knows about film as someone who can then make film. And oh, that's yeah. not true in real life. Well, I have issues with Randy in this movie, um, just because he's kind of creepy and stalkery for following Sid to college. Yeah. And <laughs> he pulls we'll a felicity. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't understand that reference. Uh-huh. I didn't watch Felicity. Ask an I older mean, person, they'll explain it for you. Okay. I mean I, I know Felicity, I just don't know what happens in Felicity. The first episode is literally her following a guy to college completely oh. contrary to her original plans because he compliments her and she thinks that she might have a chance with him. Oh, Carrie Russell. Okay. Um, Anyway, so again, rewriting. To avoid the script leaking again, the actors were not given the last page of the script until weeks before shooting the ending. Mm -hmm. Actually, probably closer to even like the day of. I think so. Oh, that's it. The pages that revealed the killer's identity were only provided on the day the scene was shot to the actors involved. So Mm -hmm. anyone not in that final scene like didn't know the ending of this movie. (laughs) Yeah, it was also printed on non-photocopyable paper. Mm -hmm. And well, they they had NDAs um, for everyone, of course, like there was like legal repercussions. Um, You are right about the non-photocopyable paper, which, again, is just funny to think about. (laughs) Yeah, right. Security was tightened, closed film sets, strict restriction with personnel that could be there during filming. I mean, you think that they were shooting, it's like the close-up with, like, um, with nude scenes, you know, that's basically how this was treated. Yeah. Also, I guess because of, like, because of the rush production schedule, like, Williamson wasn't always available, so sometimes Craven was, like, forced to write and develop certain scenes as they were being filmed, which, Mm. again... Should make this movie a huge clusterfuck. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the reasons why these screen films work so well is because there's a really clear understanding between Williamson and Craven. I get the impression that they not only worked well together, but they had a very similar sensibility on how to approach the material. Mm -hmm. So it's surprising that Craven had to step in, but he's got such a handle on the material that it feels seamless. Like, when you look at this, it feels like both of them are creators of this content. I do th- yes. Well, actually, because even watching some of the behind-the-scenes stuff on the first movie, I 
when they were talking about character stuff, like I think Nev Campbell even says, "Oh yeah, oh you no, know, Courtney Cox is like, well, that's what Wes Craven wants with these characters," and it's like, but it's Williamson's characters. Yeah, yeah. Craven's directing it, but I also think it's a testament to Williamson's script in that first movie. And again, we discussed this in the audio commentary, but how much work goes into developing these characters mm-hmm. to where everyone involved, like I'm sure in the sequel, knew what their character should be doing or what they would do. Yeah, which is funny because the sequel doesn't take quite the same care with a lot of these characters. They're right. a little bit more stock archetypes and a lot of there's them so don't many actually of them. get yeah, there's so many more of them, right? Because they really want to beef up the red herrings. You know, they introduce a bunch of people so that they can kill them off, which makes sense. But Scream 2 still does a better job than a lot of other slasher films where the characters just feel phoned in. And in part I think it's because they also cast right. better teen and college actors in this film so they they gave people shittier roles but they gave them to better actors so they could make them memorable yeah and and, well it's also just casting all those tv actors at the time which nev Mm -hmm. campbell apparently so she because she was still doing party of five when this was being filmed and she would basically like film party of five on like monday tuesday wednesday and then film scream two thursday friday saturday sunday And then have a nervous breakdown Sunday night. Well, so get this, though. So she would, like, between Sunday and Monday, she would, like, just, you know, go to, like, I guess because I filmed this in Georgia mostly, fly to L.A., get no sleep, and spend, like, 15 minutes to, like, just get ready, and then go to set for Dawson's Creek, uh, for um, Party of Five. Oof. Wow. I What a fucking trooper. Whenever we do Scream 3, there's even more of that. But, like, it kind of makes sense why, like, after Scream 3, like, she did stuff, but, like... (laughs) <laughs> she was like, I also need a break. Yes, I, I think that <laughs> explains a lot of it, because she was a working girl in the late 90s, early 2000s. Right, yes. I did want to point out, too, though, that apparently in 2017, which, again, I didn't know this, Williamson claimed that the leaked script for Scream 2 was a dummy draft that was crafted specifically to avoid leaked details, and that he had actually written three dummy endings. Hmm. Okay. So, that's cool, I guess. Well, there's a bunch of weird narratives because one of the things that I heard Wes Craven say on the audio commentary for Scream 2 was that only 40 pages of Williamson's original script leak. So if you think about that, that sounds like what Williamson originally had before they greenlit the sequel. So it sounds like there's a little bit of careful finessing in terms of how this came about, but having looked at what that original script was whether or not it's really authentic even right i think that the script leak actually improves the film because having four killers and having hallie and like basically having the best friend and the boyfriend be the killers is really uninspiring i I think had derek been any a killer in any fashion like it It would have really i mean why would he even do that you know like why would you do the boyfriend again you know Mm -hmm. Well, part of it was to really reinforce the fact that Sydney can't trust anybody and that her romantic life is always putting her in jeopardy. The explanation that they have Derek give is that he and Hallie are Bonnie and Clyde, Sid and Nancy, natural born killer type killers. Well, I actually, again, final product, I like the way it plays out more with uh, Mickey, Timothy Oliphant, like trying to gaslight Sydney into making, him, or making her think that Derek is in on it while he's strapped mm-hmm. up on the crucifixion thing. Yeah. Yeah, I I think it works out much better. But again, we'll talk about it when we get to the ending. Yeah. But yeah, so on top of all that shit, you know, like we said, Nev Campbell had like a stressed production, because she had her TV stuff, so she had scheduling issues. Also, we've got Courtney Cox on Mm -hmm. Friends causing scheduling issues. Sarah Michelle Gellar is in between filming Buffy, and I know you did last summer. (laughs) Yep. 
So she was only available. Also, this is the thing, though. So apparently they had a lot easier time casting this film than the first one because the first one was so successful and because of Drew Barrymore. Yeah. Everybody and their dog wanted to be in this movie. I remember this hysteria about people trying to get any bit role in this movie. It was like Mm -hmm. the hottest project in Hollywood. Which, again, is insane that this slasher movie, (laughs) this slasher movie is like, what's doing it? Yeah. But yeah, so Geller took the role without even having read the script. She was like, oh, Scream 2? Fuck yeah, I'm going to do it. Like, whatever. Mm-hmm. Rebecca Gayhart, like, she auditioned for Tatum in the first movie. Um, and she had auditioned in Scream 2 for Cece, which is Sarah Michelle Geller's role. Hallie yep. and Hallie is um, Elise Neal. And the Jada Pinkett role, again. <laughs> so it's crazy. Like, can you imagine being Rebecca fucking Gayhart? Like, I know she wasn't really an established actress. Like, Mm-mm. Urban Legend had not happened at this point. Yeah, it's the year after this. But she had done acting. And... For her to try out all those different times and to continually get rejected, like, I feel bad for her. I think it ended up working out. But obviously, Lois is not the greatest role in Scream 2. No. I mean, what her and Portia de Rossi do with the material they're given is good. Uh, It's really funny, all things considered. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I feel like we've really come around on them. I remember initially watching this and being like, Eh, like, well, I don't even know why these girls are in here. And now, since they've become more famous in the interceding years, it's, yeah, it's a really funny bit comedy role. I didn't look it up, but it always made me feel weird with Portia de Rossi because I feel like, I feel like she's a lot older than she should be, like, it's for a college girl, because this is also right out of McBeal time. So, right. I just, I, again, I just thought it was a really weird casting choice, but it works. Mm-hmm. It's one of our queer content for this film as well. Oh, yes, exactly. There ain't a lot of queer content in Scream 2, surprisingly enough. I don't think there's any homophobia in the movie, though, is there? Uh, no, there's no pansy ass, if you're talking about that. Oh, that's true. Um, of course, you know, yeah, Kevin Williamson is your queer screenwriter. Okay, so, yeah. that is the lead-up to the release of this film, so let's just, now we're gonna dive in. Uh, you okay. Know, 25 minutes in. <laughs> <laughs> long episode, folks, buckle in. <laughs> so, yes, Scream 2, which is two hours long, a full 120 minutes, the longest film in the franchise... And earns every minute of it. Yep. Yeah. It's well paced. It doesn't, uh, I was going to say, it doesn't slag, but that's not the right term. (laughs) I think there's one scene that people take issue with of like being useless. And we'll, again, talk about it when we get there. Okay. Released by Dimension Films on December 12th, 1997, which is less than a year after the first one came out by like eight days. Okay. The game budget, $24 million. Now here's what I love. So... This film was supposed to be such a big hit that the release dates for Titanic and the James Bond film Tomorrow Never Dies, which were scheduled for December 12th, were pushed back a week to December 19th because they didn't want to compete with Scream 2. That is amazing. (laughs) I mean, Titanic, I think, did okay in the long term. Well, so here's this. Scream 2 opens number one with $32.9 million. Titanic, the next week, would open at number one with $28 million. So Scream 2 made more its opening weekend than Titanic made its opening weekend. Mm -hmm. A little bit longer legs on Titanic. A little bit. I mean, it does make, it has earned over $2 billion. So, (laughs) Um, but yeah, so Scream 2 would go on to gross $101.4 million domestically, um, which is about $2 million less than the first movie, which is really, really good. No, I'm going to correct you. It's just under a million dollars less. Oh, really? Did it make... Okay, that's fine. The The amount you've got is right, but Scream 1 only earned like 102. Oh, I thought it was 103. Okay. Because people were amazed. People thought that the second film would open bigger, but that it wouldn't have the same kind of legs. And admittedly, it doesn't, but for it to come within shouting distance of that. And again, at this point in time, 
horror films are not making over a hundred million dollars. Like under- no. Um, also, I'm going to correct you. Box Office Mojo says Scream won 103 million dollars domestically. Hmm. Eh. But 101.4, so it's really 1.5, 1.6 million dollars less. So you know who's counting. Sure. But this is the weird thing. Uh, Scream 2 makes $71 million overseas, whereas Scream 1 made $70 million overseas. So we've got a worldwide total of Scream 2 of $172.4 million, which is just $0.6 million less than the first movie. Oh, that's what I was thinking of. Because I knew that one of the grosses was under a million dollars difference. Yes. So we're both right. No, yeah. It, it, it's when you bring in the... Which I don't think back then people, like studios took international numbers as seriously, whereas now yeah. it like makes or breaks your film. Oh, yeah. Nowadays, it's like you barely make money in the domestic market. It's all about international grosses. Yeah. But I mean, I think that, and the weird thing is, yeah, that it's, domestic gross was slightly under what Scream had made, but it's international gross was slightly over what Scream 1 had made. So, mm-hmm. but again, not by a wide margin. Yeah. Now... This is where I want to get into the reception, though. So, among people not in the know, people like to think that Scream 2 is, you know, looked down upon by people. It actually got better reviews in the first movie. Hmm. I mean, again, Rotten Tomatoes, do what you want with it. Um, It's working at 82%, average score of 6.84 out of 10. Boo. And I think Scream 1 has 81%. And again, we've talked about this with, like, movies, like, before 2003. It's kind of hard to gauge Rotten Tomatoes, but this movie has, like, 82 reviews on it, so. Okay. That's reasonable. But here's the thing. Audience score of 56%. But, but the average score is the exact same. 6.84 out of 10, because I didn't know this. The audience score on Rotten Tomatoes only counts it as a positive review if you give it a 3.5 out of 5 or higher. Yeah, okay. So a 3 out of 5 is marked as rotten on an audience score. Oh. Right? Weird. That I is, know. That is some wonky math there, Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> uh, so I don't think that's fair. So Rotten Tomatoes, fix it. Yeah. Metacritic, we're looking at a 63 out of 100 from critics, which is lower, but then an 87 out of 100 from users. So again, there's that weird... that's a little bit better. That's what I expected. So the gays are also using Metacritic, clearly. (laughs) Yes, internet gays, get on that Metacritic. But yeah, I... That's kind of it for the lead-up. I mean, I guess we could just dive into your plot summary, but I just, you know, positioning the film, understanding what makes it so good, why it is the way it is... And how it should have been a fucking clusterfuck, and it's not. Yep. All right. Well, let's get into it. Okay. Okay. So we open with Maureen, played by Jada Pinkett at the time. Now Jada Pinkett Smith. Was she? Okay, so she had done Set It Off. But I don't think she was like a big... Maybe she was in a TV show, actually. I don't, I don't know much about this time period. <laughs> I was just going to let you go off and see how far you went. I also do not know... I believe that this was one of those things where I think a lot of black actresses wanted this particular role. Mm-hmm. And I mean, as we talked about in our Tales from the Crypt episode, Jada Pinkett was hot at the time. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense that they went with someone literally hot in terms of box office, but also hot as in like, she'd be looking good in this movie. Yeah. Yeah. So we've got Maureen and Phil played by Omar Epps, and they are attending a sneak preview of their new movie, Stab, which is the film adaptation of Gail Weathers' best-selling book about the Woodsboro murders depicted in the first film. Because <laughs> again, just by coming out less than a year after the first film, this takes place, I want to say, like three years after the first film. It is, yeah, three years later. Okay. Which I think also helps because it has given Sydney time to recuperate from her multiple years of trauma depicted in the first movie. Yeah, well, and it also allows the actors' ages to match up closer with the characters' ages. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, everybody's actually looking very age-appropriate in this film. Well, because it's college. And again, I don't think before this, you had a lot of college-set slashers. It was a lot of either actual adults or high school. Mm -hmm. Because after this, we have Urban Legend, which is also college. And that's it. I don't know. (laughs) It's college. (laughs) Just the one. Yeah, it's good. (laughs) Okay, so the audience at this screening is very rowdy and very vocal. (laughs) To put it mildly. (laughs) Like, to the point where you think, uh, I'm pretty sure security would have been called in on these motherfuckers. (laughs) I, I get it. I think it's like, you know, it's a hyperbolized example of a rowdy screening, but mm-hmm. holy fuck. I I would not enjoy this screening at all. No, you can't understand what's happening in the movie. Not only that, but just people are acting like fucking maniacs. Also, I don't believe that half of these people read the book. Oh, no. Like, they probably <laughs> don't even know what the movie is. They're like, oh, I got a free screening. ghost costume. Yeah, free screening, ghost costume, and glow-in-the-dark stabbing knife. I'm yeah. in. I love the one guy that's running around going, kill, kill, kill. Uh, it's every theatrical experience I had in 2019. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Not really. Mm. So Maureen is very uncomfortable with all of this. She's, uh, she's taken a very academic approach to horror films and the depiction of the African-American element. And she does not like the way that these dumb white folks are acting. And she is correct in that regard. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So the film begins, and Phil goes to the bathroom, and he is immediately murdered in the men's room via a stab to the ear through the bathroom stall. So this is actually a fun fact, too, which I did not know. So because Scream 1 had such an issue getting the R rating, like, they submitted it so many times, it was NC-17, they cut out some shit from, like, Casey and Steve's deaths and whatnot. Mm -hmm. So they did have to submit this film a couple times, but... Craven actually tried to manipulate the MPAA by sending them a yes. version of the film that was, like, more violent. Yes. Which includes Omar Epps' character being stabbed in the ear three times. Ugh, overkill. Once was enough. Yep. And Randy, that would be that would show his throat getting slashed. And they never intended to use that footage. So they thought that if they submitted the more violent version, then the MPAA would have... They, then they could submit the version they wanted, and the MPAA mm-hmm. would have been fine. But the MPAA actually approved the more violent version of this movie. <laughs> So does that mean that there's a more violent version out there somewhere and we've just never seen it? I guess. I mean, I highly doubt the footage still exists. There are deleted scenes on the DVD, but mm-hmm. it's it's only two of them. And it's uh, one of them is legit, just an alternate version of the film school sequel se- sequence. Yeah. And it really sucks. Did you watch it? I did. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's really bad. <laughs> we'll get there in a moment. Yeah, that's fine. Okay. So... Phil is dead. Oh, wait, wait. Actually, sorry. Also, logistics of this. Mm -hmm. It doesn't make a lot of sense. No. How would you even know that the person had their head up against the bathroom stall? Again, given what we are led to believe about the copycatting rules of this killer, how would he know that he would go into that stall? Mm -hmm. It does not hold up under scrutiny, but I'll forgive it because it's still a cool death. Yeah, no, there's probably more plot holes in this film in terms of how does the killer know that someone's going to be there doing this at that time but again suspension of disbelief i mean if you watched every movie with that attitude you would never enjoy a fucking thing right yeah so back in the theater maureen is joined by phil and i put phil in quotation marks because of course (laughs) he's wearing phil's jacket but also a ghost face mask and as they watch heather graham's casey get stabbed on screen maureen herself is stabbed so, while I love this film, of course, nothing is going to touch that Drew Barrymore sequence of the first film. Mm-hmm. I do 
love the commentary William tries to imbue with people thinking, and as Sydney says later, that this was a publicity stunt, that it wasn't real. So people just watching this murder happen in real yeah. time and yep. doing nothing about it. And basically becoming accomplices to this murder because mm-hmm. they do nothing. There's also, um, like, before the um, the title card actually pops up, like, it holds on her face for about four so seconds. So long. Yeah. I had forgotten how long it holds on that. Yeah, it's really, really cool. I also, sorry, I'm trying to look it up because the IMDb page actually does have a whole section on, like, who is the killer in the mask when people get killed. Oh, God. Okay. I know. <laughs> so we're, we'll go through this as people die. But hey, this is for Maureen and Phil. Ghostface kills Phil and wears his jacket to trick Maureen into thinking he's her boyfriend. She touches him and isn't suspicious, pointing at Mickey being Ghostface here. Right. Because if it, if it was Mrs. Loomis, then it would be a woman's arm and it would be weird. Yeah. She would have felt them boobs, maybe. Yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> The other interesting thing that you didn't cover when you were talking about the production is Mm -hmm. that this was actually the first example of a major leak from the set. So in addition to the script, apparently all of these extras could not keep their fucking mouth shut. Oh, I believe it. It was one of the first times that Wes Craven said, oh, yeah, you know, we had all these people. And then the Internet was flooded with descriptions of the opening scene the next morning because they all just went home and blabbed. Oh, my God. Which makes sense if you think about it. They probably had a couple hundred extras in this and you would have been sitting there watching Jada Pinkett die on stage and then you just go home and you're like, I guess what I saw. Well, also, I mean, because obviously it didn't happen with the first screen because A, people didn't think it was going to do very well and Mm -hmm. B, the internet did grow so much between 96 and 97, especially in terms of like message boards and chat rooms and things like that. So I'm just imagining also how they looked again, like that old fucking like big ass computer. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I was on there talking about the bronze and Buffy. <laughs> <laughs> I actually, before I get into Buffy, I had a friend that would um, go on a Buffy chat room. And I guess people would like find the scripts and post spoilers. Or I guess maybe it was like review screeners. and people. Would, but she would read spoilers for the episodes every day before she even watched the episode. Uh, gosh. I like to think that I'm not crazy spoiler averse. But I really enjoy the experience of seeing something for myself the first time. Mm, that makes sense. I don't know, but like my sister actually reads up on things before she goes to see them just so that she can enjoy the experience without constantly wondering what's going to happen next. I'm really bad. So if I can see a movie opening weekend, I'm fine. But if if it's like if I'm like missing a movie in theaters and like I, I won't get to see it, sometimes I will go read that Wikipedia plot summary just so I can know what happened. <laughs> Weird. Does I that know. mean that you are then less inclined to ever try to track it down, though? sometimes it depends on the movie like if i read it i'm like oh that sounds good then i'll yeah i'll be like more like if it's something i really 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 want to see or if it's like something that's like a big cultural phenomenon i'm gonna see it like opening weekend or second weekend you know although right. <laughs> we're recording this on new year's eve and i still have not seen rise of skywalker so but i haven't read spoilers because i'm like i know i i know people and that's also the, the opinions on it i'm like Ugh, i'm not even excited about it anymore <laughs> uh yeah but that's that's another podcast yeah <laughs> we'll leave that to other people because i don't want to wade into that yeah, that's fine. Okay, so, screen two, title card. Mm-hmm. Let's head over to Windsor College, which is where Sydney Prescott, Nev Campbell, is now attending university. Or and college, imme- I guess, whatever you guys call it down there. Yeah, it's college. Uh, immediately, though, she's given more agency, like, from her first sequence, her first line, even. 
Yes. Uh, I made a very offensive comment in our audio commentary where I said that Sydney becomes more interesting because she has accrued more trauma. And I feel very bad about phrasing it that way because that is a terrible... Hey, it's a terrible way for men to write women. Women are not more interesting because they have undergone trauma. Mm -hmm. What I was trying to make the argument of is that Sydney has more agency in this film. Like in the first film, it takes her until the revelation that her boyfriend and his best friend slash gay lover are killers to really take control of her own narrative. Whereas you're right in this film, from the very first moment we see her, she wakes up phone call. It's a prank call voiced by Roger Jackson, of course, Mm -hmm. because he comes back and she just shuts it down. She's like, Nope, Corey Gillis. Fuck you. This is my movie. (laughs) And um, also with Roger Jackson, apparently. So normally, obviously when you do phone calls in movies, um, there's no one on the other line. Like they'll just fill it in later with um, ADR or post-production stuff. Right. Or you've got uh, Wes Craven's assistant, Julie Plex, saying, I, I'm going to be playing the role of Corey Gillis in this phone call. Right. And so basically, they actually did have Roger Jackson on, Roger Jackson, Roger Jackson on set, um, <laughs> reading, like, like, reading the lines of them as they were on the phone. And apparently right. everyone on set like did not converse with Roger Jackson, except, nope. except for Sarah Michelle Gellar, who like would go talk to him between scenes. <laughs> Oh, really? I thought that he deliberately stayed away from them so that he could remain menacing. I thought that he was, like, unavailable for them, like they couldn't even get to him. That was true in the first one, for sure. Uh, okay. um, but apparently in this one, like, I think people did try to do that because of the first one, I think Sarah Michelle Gellar was like, Hey, what's going on? <laughs> I'm Sarah Michelle Gellar. I'm super bubbly and personable. Let's <laughs> hang out. <laughs> Sarah Michelle Gellar, I want to hang out. Oh my god, I know, so bad. Anyway. Anyway, okay, so Sydney's in control of her life, and then she sees a talk show appearance by Cotton Weary, Liev Shriver, and he is talking about how he has been exonerated. He's actually talking to Kevin Williamson in a cameo. Oh, I, I didn't Did even know, know that? that. No. Yeah. <laughs> he plays the talk show host. Gotcha. Had no idea. Yeah. And then she gets some mild beratement from her roommate, Hallie, and Hallie is basically trying to get her to lower her walls and just engage in the pledge process at Delta Lambda Zeta sorority house because she knows that this is going to be a challenging period of time for Sydney with the opening of staff. Okay, I actually do like the character of Hallie. Um, She's not quite as compelling as Tatum. No, but but she's also not given as much to do. Well, and that's the thing, and I do think that's probably a factor of these rewrites. A hundred percent. And we'll get to her death later, but I... I do wish she was given more to do, but I think given what, like, with what she has, she's fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. So at this point, they hear the news about the murders, and we get the film rolling. So Sydney yep. tracks down Randy, Jamie Kennedy, in film class, where they are debating the value of sequels. So this is our first full true taste of meta. So we're watching a sequel. They're talking about whether or not sequels are good and how they ruin the horror franchise. And admittedly, I have been to film school, as I have mentioned a couple times. Ugh, yes, Trace, we get it. There is no fucking class like this. It does not no. exist. <laughs> <laughs> you would maybe get this in like your first year film class where you get the breakout sessions with the TA and the TA is trying to fill 50 minutes of dead air by but saying like, so what's your favorite horror movie sequel? You could argue that because of the deaths of Maureen and Phil, like the syllabus for that day was canceled and they are just discussing like the whole situation. But yeah. my only, if this was high school, that would make sense to me. Okay. But because it's college and it's a decent sized college from what I can tell, mm-hmm. 
And then the, the, it's like, oh, I had biology with that girl. I was like, okay, but there's a lot of biology classes. <laughs> yeah, there isn't one <laughs> single biology class that you had with her. It just, yeah, I don't like, I, you don't know people in college, you know? It's not like there's like, like there's a caste system where like people know, everyone knows everyone. It's not a thing. So it doesn't mm-hmm. really hold water for me. But again, suspension of disbelief. And we get Sarah Michelle Geller's introduction. We get Joshua Jackson. And of course, this is when we meet Mickey, Timothy Oliphant. Uh, and of course, I'm sure people are going to yell at us. Yes, the aliens flub line is... Yeah egregious yeah randy you should have known better (laughs) well which and so this is when the deleted scene comes into play though so the in the alternate version of this scene sarah michelle geller and joshua jackson are not there and it's another girl doing sarah michelle geller's lines and she is um not as good not good (laughs) and the classroom also looks janky as fuck it looks (laughs) because it's actually filmed where they're filming the majority of the external campus Mm -hmm. anything that looks expensive and large they're actually filming at ucla not yes correct but yeah but they do get the aliens line right in that scene that they didn't use and then when they reshot it something happened and it just got mm-hmm. messed up so randy corrects joshua jackson about the get away from her you bitch line and it's he, it's wrong <laughs> it's right. really it's really bad that's interesting actually because there's a couple of different points where wes craven not so kindly points out that jamie kennedy was flubbing a lot of his lines in this movie oh <laughs> so i don't know if maybe jamie kennedy was uh at his best when he was filming this movie are you alluding to drug use i don't know (laughs) i wouldn't be surprised it's possible i mean you know he kind of quote unquote shot to fame after the first movie uh i mean again ish but like you know riding a high yeah sometimes literally (laughs) literally (laughs) (laughs) okay so sydney grabs randy as the class ends and she tries to convince him that these horrific events are starting back up and randy says no he would prefer not to think of it that way but he does that that that, that british accent and it would have been a good one too lots of violence happens at the multiplex yeah that was an ad lib of course it was (laughs) Apparently they had to reshoot that entire scene because they had bad lighting. So that was what gave us the opportunity to have Randy's first accent of the film. Oh my god. (laughs) So at this point we are introduced to Derek Jerry O'Connell, who is Sydney's boyfriend, and he has arrived to whisk her away to a pseudo-quasi-happy existence. I love Jerry O'Connell. Derek is a very bland character. <laughs> but There's a lot of bland characters who are livened up by great performances in this film. I know. And like, because Jerry O'Connell, I mean, like, he's been in the business for, like, you know, since Stand By Me for a very long time. And I think he was actually doing a TV show during this as well. I don't know what it was because it probably didn't last very long. But uh, I can tell you, and it did. It was oh. Sliders, and it lasted for four fucking years. Oh, I never, okay. My, I never watched Sliders, but that makes sense. Okay. Okay. I love Sliders, so fuck you. I remember seeing the commercials for it on Sci-Fi. It's got John, Jonathan, no, John Rise Davies before he became famous in Lord of the Rings. I don't know who that is. Oh my God. <laughs> um, anyway, but yes. Jerry no, O'Connell, think... you love him. He's fit as fuck and looking good in this movie. He's been fit as fuck for a very long time. Well, not stand by me, but let's not no, do some no, fat no, shaming. No. We get in trouble when we do that. It's fine. So, okay, moving on. All right. So unfortunately, Windsor campus has been overtaken by the media thanks to the murders, which means Gail Weathers, Courtney Cox, 
is on fucking campus. <sighs> and I love that her introduction is her on the phone talking about how the murders are going to be good for Stab's box office prospects. Well, it's it's the, it's, it's a mirror of her line of the first movie when she's like, a murder, an innocent man on death row. Like, oh my God, do you know what that could do for my book sales? Yeah. <laughs> so it's very helpful right off the bat to cue us that this Gail Weathers bears an uncanny resemblance to the Gail Weathers that began Scream. She has regressed and she is not the kind hearted romantic that we left her as. I also, so her hair is obviously very different. <laughs> I'm sorry, what tier is her hair in this film? This is, uh, this is the streaks, which is the $5 tier on the Patreon. The five dollar tier on the Patreon. I like the streaks. I will defend I like the, the streaks. streaks. I think they're really yeah. good. I because what it does is it angle. It, it makes her angular features more pronounced, which really adds to her like the, like her. She looks a bit more severe. Yes. Oh, yeah. that's a good word. Severe. Uh, it it definitely makes her give like a heart, more harsh appearance. Yeah, I do think it's funny that they seem to mirror Sydney's and Gail's hair throughout the entire run of yeah. the franchise. So they mm -hmm. always have almost identical hair. And of course, they're both the final girls of all these films. Yeah, I like it. It's a nice visual cue. But yeah, no, she's a uh, cutthroat even more so in this movie. Oh, 100%. Like, in the first film, she doesn't have the success, so she's just almost a desperate wannabe. Like, she knows she's not taken seriously because of her name and because she right. works for a shitty, probably regional television yeah. station. Whereas here, she's the best-selling author of this book that has been made into a movie, and she thinks she's a big-ass deal. <laughs> Which you can tell by her clothes in this film. They're quite a bit more expensive-looking. And, okay, she gets more of an arc in this movie, though, because, yeah, she actually just progressed as a character by the end. Like, again, the character work by Kevin Williamson, for at least the main trio, mm -hmm. is really well done. Always good. Yep. Mm -hmm. So she is introduced to her local cameraman, Joel, played by Dwayne Martin. And she also gets to meet, for the first time in this film, desperately complimentary local newswoman, Debbie Salt, played by Laurie Metcalf. I confess, I never watched Roseanne growing up, so when yeah, I finally saw Scream 2... Oh, actually, funny story. So yeah, um, I, Scream 2, when I watched the original trilogy, it was my least favorite out of the three, because I really... Uh, I hated the Mrs. Loomis reveal, because I was like, it comes out of nowhere, I don't like that actress, blah 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 blah. <laughs> It wasn't until years later when I rewatched and I was like, wait, this is actually like really well done. And also she's fucking great. <laughs> God, 12 year old you was such an idiot. It was, yeah. It was, I mean, again, 12 year old me thought Scream 3 was the best one. Yeah. <laughs> what difference Ooh. years make in age. This performance of hers, before we get into the batshit insanity of Mrs. Loomis, the Debbie Salt character. She's a great character before she's revealed as Mrs. Loomis. Oh, 100%. And I will confess... I really did not expect her being the killer. No. I think that this is the movie where I think maybe for a little bit, because I do think that the killer reveal in that movie is done very well, and I didn't see that one coming, or at least one mm -hmm. of them. It hides it very well. Yeah. I'll confess I never clued into the reveal for, I think, any of the films except one. But again, as I've discussed many, many fucking times, my sister ruined that movie for me, so it was almost easy to spot yeah, the fact that Billy and Stu were the killers when you know to look for it. But right. all the rest of the films I saw in theater opening weekend, and it never occurred to me that Debbie Salt was the killer. I so good. believe I thought it was Cotton Weary for most of the time. Which, again, if that was the case, I would not have liked it. No, that would have been a terrible reveal, which, yeah. of course, is why <laughs> I thought it, because it's so heavily leaning towards him. Yeah. Oh, he, they, he is red herring to the fuck out. 
oh yeah, that's his role in this film. Mm-hmm, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, so we had this overeager Debbie Salt, and then, you know, Gail just dressing her down constantly. Yes. <laughs> your desperate remarks are both obvious. And <laughs> no, it's your flattering remarks are both desperate and obvious. But then you have that woman in the background just go, ouch! Yes. Which I think is ADR, but it's still amazing. I don't even know, but it's really good. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of good reactions from the crowd in this movie. Yeah. So they are all congregating for a police briefing, and we get introduced to Chief Hartley, who is played by Louis Arquette, who I did not realize until this rewatch is David Arquette's father. That's correct, and he died four years after this movie. Oh, uh, I know. Way to bring down the room, Trace. I know, but <laughs> yeah. He's good. He's fine. I mean, he's there. He's there. So we've got the press scrum surrounding Chief Hartley, and of course, Gail is making it all about her. Mm-hmm. And we've got Sydney, Randy, Derek, Hallie, and Mickey, as you mentioned, Timothy Oliphant, watching and providing commentary from the sidelines, including, as I said on Twitter, my favorite line from this film, which is where Randy says, she had calf implants. I <laughs> I wonder if that was ad lib, too. It's such a bitchy thing to say. <laughs> Also, who notices this woman got famous? Yeah, who gets calf implants? It just makes Randy even more creepy, which again, when we get to his death, like most people don't like this movie because of his death. And I'm like, but he's kind of a creepo in this movie. Yeah, yeah, he's gotten a bit big for his britches. Mm -hmm. So at this point, we are introduced to sorority sisters Lois, Rebecca Gayhart, and Murphy, Portia de Rossi. Hi, Sydney. Hi, Sydney. (laughs) Not really. I mean that. (laughs) That's coming later. That's later. Yeah. So Hallie is all about pledging the sorority. Sydney could not give two shits. She is decked out like she is on her way to Gothville in this film. She wears a <laughs> lot of dark clothes, dark reds, blacks. Everybody else is decked out in cream Easter colors. Well, and it's okay. It's like, and this is the difference between Hallie and Tatum from the first movie. Because it's like, Hallie is like, oh, this will be good for you. When clearly it's not, because she doesn't mm-hmm. want to fucking do it. Whereas Tatum is, like, very understanding, despite asking Sid, like, the hard questions in the first movie. I think Tatum is a better friend to Sydney than Hallie is to Sydney in this movie. But Hallie means well. Yeah, I think she thinks that she's doing a good thing by getting Sydney's mind off of what's happening. But yeah. this is not the way to go. And no. Sydney keeps projecting that with every encounter with these two sorority girls. <laughs> she has no time for them, and I am here for it. Oh, it's so great. So good. So Sydney then gets ambushed by Gail, who fabricates a meeting with Cotton. So Cotton is actually also on campus, and he thinks that they are going to have a tete-a-tete for 10 minutes of airtime, and it's going to be great for his image. And Sydney is having none of that either, and she gives <laughs> Gail a backhand. <laughs> it's, uh, again, it's a rehash of the first movie, but I'm gonna fuck. So I think that's one of the things that people don't like as much about this movie, is they feel that it's just aping better moments from the first film. I completely disagree with that perspective. I think that this film is paying off moments from the first film. Mm -hmm. So it's doing what you would expect a sequel to do. But by giving it to you in a slight different, like a variation of how it was presented the first time around, but also in a wink, wink, nudge, nudge, like I know that you know kind of way, it feels playful to me. I think had Scream 1 been a quote-unquote standard slasher length of 85 to 90 minutes, which means you cut 20 to 25 minutes out of that movie. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you don't have the character development as much. Yes, I could see this one, yeah, it's just aping off the first one. But you're right, the continuity between between films, between all four of these films, which is mostly well done, minus three, 
is what makes that true, is what makes your, your assessment of this true. Yeah. Because even stuff like the opening sequence with Jada Pinkett in the theater, if you think about the way that her stabbing is intercut with the stab movie that we're seeing on screen, that's a direct reference back to what's happening with Halloween and the climax of the first film. Mm. But it would be easy to overlook and just be like, oh, they're just being meta again. They are being meta, but it's also saying, hey, remember how we did this in the first film? We're doing it again because real life is mirroring what's happening in these fictional. I also realized we didn't really touch on the fake stab film with Heather Graham, but that's also a really good takedown of probably what a sequel, like like a standard slasher film, like the the types of horror films that Scream was aping because the types of scares they were doing in the stab movie, which by the way was directed by Robert Rodriguez, Mm -hmm. is really it's really funny but it's so bizarre to me because it, some of it plays out like shot for shot like the first movie but then some of it, like when like ghost is like on like the skylight looking at her i makes... know and you're like what that makes no sense but the line that i love which heather graham delivers with such conviction is um you know i don't even know you but i dislike, I dislike you already, you already. <laughs> <laughs> oh it's so good <laughs> yeah uh. I may quote that line a little too regularly as well. No, it's it's so perfect. I think I think in Scream Four, that's one of the things that the kids quote when they're doing the Sabathon. Oh, mm, I gotta rewatch Four again. Four is so good, so good. We'll get there eventually. I know. Okay, so Sydney has backhanded Gale and stormed away, and Gale is like, "Guess who got hit again?" <laughs> Yes. So at this point, Dewey comes in and he chastises Gail for her less than flattering depiction in her book of him. And then he finishes by dismissing her streaks, which which it's a bit of a low blow, Dewey. I love. <laughs> so this is what I didn't know about this movie. And it kind of makes me a little upset. So the Dewey theme. Yes. So part of it, it's like, it's like the, 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 the almost like a triangle is is like that's i think that's marco beltrami's score but when mm-hmm. the guitar kicks in and it's that which sounds like a robert rodriguez film to me a lot of the time it is han zimmer's score from broken arrow oh yes i did know that oh wait is it that it was used in broken arrow and then this or vice versa no it was, it, was... it was used in broken arrow and then it was yeah added to this as a placeholder but the audience reacted so strongly to it in test screenings because it plays again when dewey and gail are making out before their Mm -hmm. av room chase yeah and then i think again at the end when she accompanies him in the ambulance correct and it's honestly one of the more memorable pieces memorable pieces of music in the film yeah and so they kept it and i i hate that because i do think it's a really good piece of music but the fact that it was reused is just like (laughs) i don't know I think of the number of times that, you know, the Inception music gets used in trailers or uh, even the Lord of the Rings. I know. Yeah, it's it's fine. Everybody's just eating their own tail in Hollywood. Yeah, it's fine. But I mean, I really do like that guitar music. But yeah, it's from Broken Arrow, which came out uh, the previous year, 1996. Right. I do not care for that movie. I've never seen it. Uh, It's generic. It's very, very generic. Okay. Yeah. So let's move on. It's the night of the big sorority mixer. Yeah, <laughs> I know exactly what you're doing. <laughs> we know this movie far too well. I, I know the music cues in this movie so well because what's the uh, the, the Dimension uh, logo in the beginning? It's I don't know what the song is, but it's the Hey yo, Hey yo, my girl. I don't know. <laughs> I think just 
people like it when we sing, right? Sure, clearly. Sure. <laughs> so let's duck into Omega Beta Zeta for CC, her big scene. Basically, it's Sarah Michelle Gellar's only real scene in this movie. I love this entire sequence. And it's not just because Sarah Michelle Gellar's in it. I think it's just a really well done scene. Yeah, I, again, I don't think that it would work half as well if it was someone other than Sarah Michelle Gellar. I think at this point, they have really acknowledged that to make this shine, they needed an actress of a certain recognition. So this is perfect timing for where Sarah Michelle Sarah Michelle Gellar's arc <laughs> is going in terms of her career trajectory. Yeah. So she is watching Nasratu and she's manning the phone as the sober sister because they drink with their brain. That's their motto. Who is she talking to, Joe? Who is she talking to? Ah, oh, shit, shit, shit. Summer Blair. Oh, that's who it is. Okay. Because <laughs> yeah. I think they were both filming. Uh, oh, actually, I don't know if they. Cruel Intentions is ninety nine. It's actually this is before yeah, Cruel Intentions later. even. But they knew each other because um, I think Summer Blair was doing Zoe Duncan, Jack and Jane. Is that a thing? Right. Yes. Yeah, so. I don't know. It's like WB shows with Buffy. Yeah. Uh, so Cece then gets a call from Ghostface, and she gets creeped out, and she has a brief encounter with another sister who, at the time, I didn't know who she was, and then this mm -hmm. time around, I was like, is that Marisol Nichols? And for listeners, if you don't know who Marisol Nichols is, the only thing I know her from is Hermione Lodge on Riverdale, but I'm yeah. sure she's done other things. <laughs> I think she had a run on Beverly Hills 90210, if I'm not mistaken. That would make sense. But um, I, I know we glossed over, but I do love the, do you want to die tonight, Cece? It's so creepy. And again, I don't think this movie's particularly scary because it's more of just a fun, or as you would say, Joe, effective film. Mm -hmm. But man, I, when they let Ghostface get really mean like that, it really works for me on a scare level. And particularly because the conversations always start off with a case of mistaken identity. So she thinks it's Ted, her mm -hmm. ill-conceived ex-boyfriend who has gotten loaded. So she's trying to rationalize with him and be like, okay, Ted, where are you? How much have you had to drink? And then he pulls out that line. And of course, we know that it's Ghostface because we recognize the voice. Right. But Cece has no fucking idea. So it's not until that moment. And then, you know, you get the sound cue <laughs> kicking in. Yeah. The <laughs> Yeah. That was great, by the way. Yeah, that was, <laughs> I sound just like it. <laughs> yeah, it was like note for note. When we do an audio commentary for Scream 2, I'm just going to do all the music myself. Fantastic. <laughs> Things I can't wait for. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so she is briefly attacked before she runs up the stairs. Ah, uh, girl, did you not listen to what Sydney said in the first film? You got to go out the front door. Also, because they, they play with the reception on the phone, because she has that, you know, giant ass white phone but also the scare whenever he uh ghostface finally jumps out of the closet because the phone rings she picks it up and then boom like he like is out of that closet it is again kind of a copycat of sydney's chase in the first scene when he jumps out of the closet and she goes up the stairs exactly it's a combination of the sydney principal himry because yes. you think that he's going to be behind the door that she's right in front of oh, and she yeah. opens it and he's not and then you're like oh it's because there's another door in the background but again, it's playing on expectations based on what the first movie saw, but then they add exactly. the extra thing of her throwing plants at Ghostface. <laughs> <laughs> throwing a bike at him. <laughs> I love it when she throws the bike at him. <laughs> it's so good. But then her death is kind of brutal. Oh, God, it's totally fucking brutal. So in my mind, I remember her trying to get out onto the patio. But then, of course, it's not that. He actually throws her through the glass. And then he stabs her in the back. And then he throws her off the three-story balcony to her death below. And then you get a good shot of her, like, just, like, bloody corpse down there. It's it's still a long shot, but it's effective. Mm-hmm. 
And as she goes over the balcony, I remember that was one of the most memorable parts. They spoil this death in the trailer. They do. I don't think you can really tell it's her, but you, they, they they do show like her, her like her flying off. Mm-hmm. So apparently, if who is Ghostface? Because again, you'll remember that when Mary Saul Nichols is on the phone, we see Ghostface sneak into the house, but Ghostface yes. isn't holding a phone. So it says there's two killers involved. So it says Mickey didn't arrive at the party until the scene that followed the murder of Cece. However, Mrs. Loomis was in front of the house after Cece was murdered. Yeah, I would think it's Loomis. So basically, Mickey films and calls Cece while Mrs. Loomis sneaks in and kills her in the house. Um, it says the caller needed to know something about Cece, like her boyfriend, and know her if the house has an alarm, which means Mickey would be more likely because he was in college with her. Right. Maybe he knew Ted. Oh, apparently, too, you can hear a, a woman's grunt when Cece throws the bike at Ghostface, making Mrs. Loomis the killer. I don't know. Oh, come on. I don't think that's true. This <laughs> I is don't IMDb think lying. So. <laughs> I call bullshit IMDb. Yeah, that's stupid. <laughs> So news of the murder travels quickly and the sorority party empties out, leaving Sydney and Derek alone. So at this point, we get our first legitimate Sydney and Ghostface encounter when Ghostface calls and he locks, well, he or she locks Sydney inside for a quick chase scene that ends with Derek getting a pity me surface wound cut on his arm. They do change. So in the trailer for this movie, like it starts with, um, the, it starts with this call and Ghostface is like, it's time, girlfriend. Yeah, I love the girlfriend. I wish Hello, they had Kevin kept Williamson. That, that would have been so good. Um, and apparently, this attack is Mrs. Loomis because she told Gail that she had a deadline. And after the scene right. where Cece was murdered, she, she runs, runs off over. and yeah, yeah. But I will say the ADR whenever she, like she's like, "Come show your face, you fucking coward!" and it's the my pleasure. It doesn't sound very good. You don't think so? No, I don't think it sounds good. Mm, it doesn't bother me. Okay, just oh, to, look you at know, you. Like you. <laughs> One year later. I know. All right. So we cut to the hospital where Mickey is consoling Sydney. And apparently this was a additional shot that was not originally in the script. And it's because they wanted to give Mickey a bit more to do because mm, he, was not an, he was not in the film enough. Yeah. And of course, Mickey is doing that thing that Stu did in the first film, which is that he's there to cast doubt on other people. So in this particular case, he's going, mm, well, why would Derek have gone back into that house? Why did he play the hero? Yeah, that makes, I, again, I have seen this movie like 50 times. I'm like piecing this together now. <laughs> <laughs> So we cut to the next day, and Gail, Dewey, and Chief Hartley are working out what kind of pattern might be yes. in play. So this is the first time where we start to get the idea that they might be enacting a real-life sequel using the names of the original film's victims. So this is a big complaint that people have with this movie. Yeah, this is probably the number one, I think. It is, and I, I do get it. Sure. Yes, it's brought up as a copycat killer. They're killing people with the same names as people as the first movie in the order they died. And literally, after this, it is not brought up again. Nope. I have to wonder if they were like, it doesn't matter. Like, we don't care. Like, we, we have to get this film out by December 12th. So just fucking go with it. So Wes Craven actually does acknowledge this in the audio commentary. He says, I know that we dropped this. I don't know if this is where that original script leak came into play. And mm. originally, this would have been a a major deal or if they just said yeah you know what we thought we were going to go down this route and then we can't be bothered and who well, gives a fuck because at some point that they'd have to find as someone who's named Hembry, which is the principal from the first movie right. and then also a tatum and we don't know none of those characters are in this movie so it's like yeah. honestly it had to have been something like from the original draft anyway like that was dropped because there's no characters with those names 
No, and to be honest, it feels more... Like, if you want to try to rationalize it, these murders happen in fairly quick succession, right? It's been about a day since the murders at the uh, movie theater first took place. Mm-hmm. I always took it as these were used as a way to lure Gale and Dewey to the campus so that they could pick them all off one by one. That would also make sense. Um, and that's why it's never really bothered me, because I'm like, well, maybe they couldn't find someone named Tatum or Principal Hembry. <laughs> <laughs> We went through the phone book. We couldn't find anybody. There was no one there. Um, also, I mean, you know, the coincidence of there being someone named Maureen dating someone named Steve. Like, I mean, right? come on. <laughs> Mickey's out there engineering like, oh, fuck. I got to break these people up so I can get her hooked up with him. <laughs> I had to win tickets to this advanced screening by naming the capital of Rio de Janeiro. <laughs> Uh, that is a reference to I Still Know What You Did Last Summer, if y'all don't know that. Um, but I, I bet you that that's why there's a three-year gap between movies, though, is because the prequel is actually Mickey playing matchmaker to Maureen and Steve. It's like a romantic comedy. Right. <laughs> With Roman guiding him from the sidelines. <laughs> no, Roman is not involved in this one at all, I don't think. I think, because uh, it's like, uh, yeah, he influences Billy and Stu, but then it's like, he got lucky with Mrs. Lewis. <laughs> Well, he's he's off in Hollywood, you know, trying to land Stab oh 3. God. Oh my god. It's not easy to get a directorial debut on Stab 3, man. You got to you got to put in your dues. I haven't watched Green 3 in so long, but I feel like we have so much to talk about when we finally cover that. Yeah. Okay. Well, at this point in the film, Sydney is put under police protection by two police officers. Oh, a gay one. One of them's gay, maybe. One of them is gay, yes. Richards is played by Chris Doyle, and Andrews is played by Philip Pavel. And I should have made a note which one is which in my notes. But yeah, Sydney says that the younger one is, I think it's Andrews is the younger one who she says is gay. And whichever one is the older one is actually not an actor. He's a stuntman. And they hired him specifically so that he could do the car scene. The car scene. scene. Yeah, Yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. Which never would have occurred to me, but makes perfect sense when you think about it. He doesn't have a lot of lines, so. Yeah. Yeah, they just stand around behind Sydney for a lot of this movie. Ooh, and there actually, no, when we get to their death, there is a moment um, that I'll bring up. So yeah, sorry, go ahead. Okay. Meanwhile, Gail is warming up to Dewey. She's even going so far as to defend him to Debbie Salt and the other members of the press. So... Dewey's a good guy, unlike some of us. <laughs> okay. Well. <laughs> <laughs> so what's the deal with this Dewey character anyway? <laughs> It's, it, it's, she's so fucking like pouncing on Gale. It's just so great. And I I, 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 I love her delivery. Of, I, I gotta go. Oh, no, she does give Gale a little dig when she gets to Cece's murder scene. And she's like, oh, Gale, you're just getting here. You're just oh, getting here? <laughs> <laughs> I've been here the whole time, Gale. Literally committing the murder. murder That's how dedicated I am. <laughs> So let's uh, get a meal in the cafeteria where Mickey tries to paint Randy as a potential killer. Because Mickey is out there sowing them seeds of discontent. Yep. Derek couldn't give two shits. He's too busy loudly and badly proclaiming his love for Sydney to the tune of I Think I Love You. So this is actually the audition for Derek. Um, they had people come in and sing this song. Oh, can you imagine how terrible <laughs> it would have been to be the casting director and have to hear everybody do this but this this is the scene that a lot of people don't like and i kind of get it maybe it's fine but i don't like it but what it does is it gives her that necklace it does serve a purpose yeah and what i didn't realize is that she wears that necklace through the two subsequent remaining films in this franchise oh really at least three for sure because Wes craven comments on it like she's wearing it in number three 
Okay. We'll have to double check when we watch four. Yeah, we'll really have to do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I get it. It's 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 probably like the least necessary scene in the movie. But because of that necklace, which again, it could have just been he gets with the necklace and like, that's it. But <laughs> yeah, no. I mean, it gives Jerry O'Connell a big moment. And I think it helps you to sympathize with him more when the finale comes together and you realize, no, he actually was a really good guy. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. All right, so let's cut to another scene from Stab as we see Tori Spelling being interviewed Ugh. by Nancy O'Dell about her role in the movie. And of course, this is a big haha because Sydney said that she was afraid she'd be played by Tori Spelling, who apparently was a very good sport about agreeing yeah. to do this. <laughs> no, yeah, they went to her and she was like, oh my God, yeah, totally. Also, don't you wonder though? It's like, well, yeah, no one's going to say no to Scream 2. Yeah, that's literally what I was thinking, too. Like, I'm sure Tori Spilling was probably not super impressed that she was the butt of the joke. But at the same time, oh, you want me to appear in the biggest sequel of the fucking year? Yeah, I'll do it. I also just love her performance and Luke Wilson. Also have the dialogue is like word for word what happens in Scream. <laughs> well, almost, except for the cemetery versus Pine Box or whatever. There you go. Yeah. But yeah, her, oh god, it's it's so funny. Oh, it's like, well, let's hear, Nancy O'Dell's like, let's hear about this performance you're earning rave reviews for. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Ooh, I love scary movies. <laughs> and nothing about that scene is scary. No, it's the worst. But if you watch daytime shows where they do these kinds of interviews, yeah. they always pick those kinds of scenes where you're like, that scene does not make me want to watch this movie. And it tells me nothing about what the movie's actually about. I know. I actually would love to go back and watch like talk shows from the first scream to see because i'm sure drew barrymore was doing press rounds and they were oh, just sure. showing like a clip of her opening scene the whole time yeah it was her answering the phone hello that's it <laughs> <laughs> that's all we can show you <laughs> so randy dismissively says that he'll wait for video and then they outline the rules of the sequel. So we have three rules, uh only two of which he actually gets to which is a bigger body count which is not true and more elaborate death scenes which is partially true well, I think there is a bigger body count in this movie than the first one, though. Uh, if there is, it's not by a lot, though. Huh. huh. I mean, I could be wrong. I think you're right. There is a bigger body count, but it's not. They make it seem like there's going to be so many more deaths. And you're like, well, there's two, and there's two, and then there's that one, and then there's that one, and then... it's So seven, seven characters in Scream, and... Uh, fuck, there's not one for Scream 2. But I think it's more than seven. <laughs> <laughs> we'll wait, get corrections wait, wait, wait. from this later there are one two three four five six seven eight nine ten kills including the killers in this movie and so seven kills including the killers and scream okay so there we go correct on both counts good job randy but i guess in general you're right though like part twos i mean yeah that's like a rule williams just made that up <laughs> yeah uh, so before he can get to the third rule, which we never really learn, no. we move on to the suspects. So we break it down for us. Obviously, there's Derek, the boyfriend, Mickey, the freaky Tarantino film student, Hallie, who is presented as racistly Candyman's daughter. Although oh. I do love the line when he says, what is it? She's sweet. She's sexy. She's, she's bad, bad for your teeth. teeth. <laughs> yeah. And then, of course, Gail Weathers is also presented as an opportunist. I do like this, though, where it's like, well, if, you, if you're, you're a suspect, I'm a suspect. Okay, let's move on. You're right. <laughs> uh, yeah, the inclusion of Gail Weathers is actually important if you think about it, because it should subtly cue us that Debbie Salt could be the killer, because she fakes the news. Well, but the idea of having Gail be the killer 
as making a sequel for her book. I wonder if that was ever seriously a contender for the plot of this movie. It almost would make more sense in part four, where mm-hmm. she's yeah. a struggling has-been, but that would be terrible. That would be just a garbage arc. Well, on the surface, yes, but because of her journey from one through three, it wouldn't have made sense to me. It would make more sense if they did it to do it in two. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if the decision was always like, these three people are our people. In the original script, everybody dies, by the way. Like even Sydney? Dewey and Sydney and Gale all die. In the original Scream 2 script? Yep. Holy shit. Mm -hmm. It's also incomplete. It just kind of ends. Oh. It's Miss Loomis and Sydney's bodies fall to the ground, and it's not clear, but it's like, nobody moves. And by that point, Dewey is already dead, and so is Gale. Because Cotton kills Sydney, right? Uh, Cotton kills Gale. Got it. Okay. Yeah. God, mess. Yeah, it's janky as fuck. It takes like two pages and it's like, here are all four killers. <laughs> it, it's really bad. It's not good. Got it. <laughs> okay, so Joel and Gale debate the merits of staying when there's a killer on the loose. And he makes some good points. But this to me is actually a bit of a like, who could care scene. Yeah. And then we move on to the auditorium, where we get arguably one of the more meta components of this film. And one of those things where I think this was Wes Craven talking to Kevin Williamson as opposed to vice versa, because it's all about theater and it's got English literature written all over it, where Sydney is performing as the prophet Cassandra who can foretell the future. But of course, nobody believes her. And this is mirroring Sydney's own journey. So... If I could cut one scene from this movie, it would be this theater scene. I don't enjoy this theater scene very much. Like, at all? Like, even when she's on the stage and she gets the sort of faux ghost face So, okay, here, do you think this is really a ghost face on the stage, or is she imagining it? I think she's imagining it, but Wes Craven suggests that there is a ghost face there. So yeah, I always thought it was a dream sequence, too. Or not Mm -hmm. a dream, but she's imagining it. Um, Because again, it's like the masks look kind of similar to what's on stage. Yep. According to IMDb. (laughs) this was mickey because right after ghostface came in front of sydney ghostface immediately goes to the exit also mrs loomis seems to have little knowledge of the stage during the end of the movie derek even told sydney that he and mickey swapped right after ghostface scares sydney giving mickey a better chance of being ghostface right i'm just like okay i i I don't believe that there's actually someone there because no, no no one else saw it no I think the only reason the scene really exists is, A, to play up the fact that we've got a stage, which is going to factor in heavily for the climax. Oh, uh, I guess, yeah. That, yes. Then in that regard, you do need the sequence. Well, the other big thing is that Lois and Murphy are both here. So I think oh. it's to potentially suggest them as killers. That makes sense. Yeah. Eh. But you're right. Like, it, it feels slightly less essential. The other big thing is that because Derek appears right after she sees it, she starts to disbelieve him at this point. So you can see her pulling away from him. Yes. And it's also a reason to have David Warner cameo. I think it's David Warner. Is that his name? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Who I I know he's like a very famous British actor, but I only know him as Billy Zane's sidekick in Titanic. Oh, so he was in this (laughs) and Titanic within a week of each other. (laughs) There we go. It was a good December for David Warner. It was. (laughs) And in case people don't know, he's the theater teacher. Yes. Okay, so let's cut to the quad where Dewey, Randy, and Gail are brainstorming Ugh. the killer's next move, and that's when Ghostface gives them a quick call. We do get some fun that funny line about the um, nude pictures of Courtney Cox, but it was just her head. It was Jennifer Anderson's body. <laughs> yeah, which could be seen as a bit of an easy joke, but I think it's clever considering you know who Gail Weathers is, so 
obviously you should play off her fame for friends. Apparently at this time, there were actually fake nude photos of Courtney Cox that were released online. So it was a commentary on that. Right. Good for them then. So the group disperses to try and find someone within Eyeline. So we we talked in both uh, the audio commentary as well as our original episode on Scream about how funny it is to go back and rewatch it and have everybody make a big deal out of cellular telephones. And the case is still true because it's only a year later. So cell phones are still a novelty in the world of Scream 2. So of <laughs> course, they're... They're more prevalent, uh, but at the same time, they seem to think that if the person is talking about seeing them, they must be within eyeline, and of course, they think they can just go and check everybody who is on a cell phone, <laughs> and they might be Ghostface. There are some fantastic... I mean, I I love when Gail grabs the girl's line, and she's like, it's like, who is this? Gail Weathers, author of the Woodsboro Murders? Who? <laughs> <laughs> It's a good uh, take Gail down a notch moment. <laughs> She's like, Gail, not everybody knows who you are, sweetie. Exactly. And then the moment where uh, <laughs> where David Arquette jumps over the fence onto that kid. Oh, and yeah. the kid is like, can I help you? Apparently that was not scripted. And David Arquette almost knocked that kid out. Oh, shit. <laughs> yeah. If you look, he lands on him like really hard. Hmm. Okay, so this is all a big ruse to separate the group. Of course, uh, the way that Wes Craven films this is fantastic. So you get overhead shots of Randy and you can see just a brief glimpse of Joel's news van behind him. But you think because there's so much open space around him that he's completely safe. And then, of course, he's pulled in, stabbed to death. R.I.P. Randy. And to enforce our queer reading of Billy and Stu, you do have Randy calling Billy a homo-repressed mama's boy. Yes. Yeah. All right. I love the killing of Randy, not because I dislike Randy, but because, all right, this is what I don't get. People don't like this. I've literally seen people say, I don't like Scream 2 because they kill Randy. That's mm-hmm. the worst thing this movie does. So I actually actively hated this movie. It took me ages to overcome the fact because I so empathized with Randy. Randy was like my spirit animal. So for mm-hmm. them to kill him, it took me ages to forgive the film. And it's so funny because this is where I, so first of all, A, it's ballsy as fuck. It's, I mean, oh, really, so really good. good. Yeah. But here's the thing. With Scream 4, so many people are like, Sydney should have died. Sydney should have been killed. Or Gail. Or some blah, 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 blah. Like, I don't like that movie because it's not ballsy enough. It doesn't do this. But then those same people I've seen diss Scream 2 for killing Randy. And I'm like, <laughs> what the fuck is wrong with you? They want it both ways. It's the same thing where it's like, oh, people want original films, but then when they get original films, they're like, oh, it's not what I expected, so I don't like it. It's just like, (laughs) y'all, make up your mind. No. Because here's the thing. We want it a certain way, but then when you give it to us, but it happens to be one of our favorite characters or somebody that is almost a proxy for the audience, no, I don't like that. Yeah, it's really frustrating to me, and I've learned to just not reply to people that, that say those things. And if listeners, if you're one of those people, I apologize. It just like it it makes no sense for me to, for you to say I want Sydney to die, but then you don't like Scream Two because Randy dies. I mean, I I don't equate them. I haven't had people try to make that argument with me. Well, they never do it in the same conversation. It's just like right. I've I've paid attention to like people doing it at different times. <laughs> My God. <laughs> what do you have like a santa's list of people <laughs> my naughty list <laughs> <laughs> i've heard a, quite a few people say yeah they don't like the fact that randy dies but i think once you get over the initial shock of it happening it really does communicate that everybody is at risk 
It does. So everybody is a suspect, but also everybody is on the table. And this film kills a lot of people that you think might make it out of mm-hmm. this alive. Now, if you say, oh, Scream 2 was ballsy by killing Randy, and I don't like 4 as much because it wasn't, it didn't take the same ballsiness by killing one of the main three. That, yeah, maybe. I, get, I get that. That makes sense. I actually thought that they were going to kill Gale in number three. Uh, yes. Uh, and I think had Nev Campbell had more time in her schedule, that might have been the case. Hmm. But because she was only available for a brief amount of time due to all of the shit she was doing at the time, right. they had they had to make Gail and Dewey more the main characters of that film. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, um, last thing on Randy, too. I love the boombox, like... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, the gang of people with a boombox just, like, walking by as Randy's, like, getting tossed around in the car. Yep. Great timing, gang. Yep. Okay. So... Randy's dead. Uh, And Mrs. Loomis obviously kills him. Obviously. Yes. (laughs) This is, I think, the only one that we can confirm for sure, right? Because she actually says it in the climax. Yes, for sure. Yeah. So, well, this is all going down. Sydney's just over in the library doing some research. (laughs) And uh, she gets an instant message from someone claiming that she's going to die that night. I think this is another prank. See, okay. IMDb says it's Mickey because he would have access to the college's computers. Okay, fuck IMDb and all of this nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> These people don't know anything. It's fine. I don't I don't think I've actually never took this to be a prank. I've always assumed this was someone actually like it was one of the killers. But the suggestion is that you can only do it from within the intranet, as right. in within the university system. Why would you take that risk? Like what yeah. is to be gained from this? Yeah, I guess that's true. Yeah. Okay, we'll go with it. (laughs) Listeners, weigh in. Is this a prank or is it Mickey? Right, okay. So for the purposes of the film, what it does is it gets Sydney away from her two security agents and it puts her into Cotton Weary's eyesight. And he pulls her aside to threateningly propose a Diane Sawyer interview. (laughs) Because once again, let's earmark this, 1997, Diane Sawyer is a big fucking deal. It's, yeah, and this is, I mean, again, this is just to make Cotton more threatening, red herring the fuck out of him, it's all good. We've barely seen him in this movie up until this point, so it's also, okay, Cotton's still in this movie. It's just the, like, attempted interview that we that we really see him, and so yeah, they yeah. bring him back, which is about, like, the it's like the 70 minute mark, honestly, of this mm-hmm. two hour movie. It's been a while, yeah. Yeah. So his refusal to take no for an answer gets him pulled into questioning, and uh, Wes Craven also credits this as oh, we had to do some shuffling around here so there's a reason that you see sydney crying over randy's death here because originally they realized oh we just killed a main character and then nobody's talking about it because we have to deal with cotton threatening sydney so they were like uh let's make that the point where she also learns about randy and she can have a cry <laughs> <laughs> Because if not, you basically murdered Randy, and then nobody acknowledges it for the rest of the movie. Oh, I also forgot to mention. So they do mention Tatum, because when they're going... Yeah, you talked about this in the audio commentary, and I couldn't remember where it comes up. Yeah, so it's it's in the phone call when they're... When, I think they're still talking about the copycat killer, and they say, okay, well, let, who's next? Like, let's talk about the killers. And Gail starts listing them off, and then she goes, Tatum, and like looks at Dewey, like, sorry, I know it's a sensitive subject. And Dewey gives like a, oh, yeah, that sucks. My sister died. Look. And, and that's, that's it? it. That is the only other mention of Tatum we get in uh, the rest of this franchise. Yeah, the rest of the franchise. Fuck. Rose McGowan, you deserve better. Yeah. But, I mean, again, at least they do mention her. But, yeah, we we never get a sense of, like, how Dewey feels about his sister's death. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that has always felt like a missed opportunity for me. Particularly in this movie. It's a, It would be a good moment for Dewey. 
Nah. It's all very Dewey and Gale, and not so much about them as individuals. But it, it also makes you forget that Dewey and Tatum were even siblings. Oh, for sure. So at this point, the decision is made to move Sydney to somewhere safe, and Hallie is going to accompany her. And that has never resonated with me. This idea that Hallie is just automatically vetted, it doesn't make any sense. Um, I guess that makes sense. Like what you're saying, it has never bothered me per se, because I just never, I guess because I never really thought Hallie was the killer. <laughs> okay. She is meant to be a red herring to a certain extent, but I feel like they don't lean into it in quite the same way that they do with other characters. Right. Yeah. So outside the police station, Gail blows up at Debbie Salt and Joel quits on her. So Gail's having a no good, very bad day. In my notes, I put Joel just leaves the movie. A hundred percent. Yeah. I do love the look, local woman. <laughs> yes. I know it gives you some high... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, again, oh God, it's kind of, actually, because even looking at Scream 3, they kind of rehash, like, the Debbie and Gale dynamic with the Parker Posey and Courtney Cox dynamic in the third movie. Yes. AKA the only reason to watch part three. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. Uh, but yeah, no, I, uh, and I think this is also the last time we see Debbie Salt until... No, there's the part where she runs out to use the payphone. Yes, and, th and then it's the reveal. Um, okay, yeah. sorry, continue. Yeah. So uh, at this point, Gail apologizes to Dewey, and they begin to reunite their bond over their shared desire to catch the killer. I just want to find this fucker. Yeah. <laughs> and at this point, uh, night suddenly falls. Apparently, their trek across campus to get to the AV building <laughs> took a took very long day. time. <laughs> they acknowledge that on the audio commentary. I can't remember who the woman is. Uh, like Wes Craven's assistant or somebody like that. But she's like, ooh, this took a long time <laughs> to get across <laughs> campus. So they head up the film school to comb through Gail's video footage and look for the killer in the background because they think that the person is a narcissist and they will have been keeping an eye out on the proceedings. And we get this nice cute moment. They have a little bit of a makeout session. And then, of course, the killer's footage begins to play above them and they see, oh, yeah, they have actually been filming their kills. I know that people think that the car sequence that's coming up is the best part of the movie, and I think it's great. This scene is probably the reason why I put Scream 2 ahead of Scream for myself. So for me, they're on par with one another. The fact that we have two such scenes in a single film is why Scream 2 gets elevated above Scream 1 for me. Hey, everyone, despite being 10 minutes longer than Scream, I actually think that this film is paced better than Scream. Yes. Not by much, but just by a bit. Yeah, we've identified a couple of scenes that maybe go on for a little bit too long, or they don't feel quite as important. But if people listen to our audio commentary, where we're literally going through it minute by minute, there's also a couple of scenes like that in Scream. And I feel like those leg more than they do here in this film. And this may be a personal thing for me, but I think because, okay, like, you know, you're getting introduced to characters in Scream, and we talked about, you know, oh, how, like, you know, the, the, the character relationships, which are obviously pre-established before the movie starts, they kind of like tease those out throughout Scream's runtime, which makes the lag between kills like more bearable. Mm -hmm. But I like that with this movie, again, you already know all of that stuff. And so the, the work that this movie does to build those characters even further and expand those roles is more interesting to me on a rewatch, I think. Yeah, it's building on the groundwork that was laid by the first film, mm -hmm. but it can do it more quickly and expeditiously because... It knows you're already invested in these characters, but it doesn't skimp on it no. like you would expect from a traditional sequel. 
and everyone like at least again with your main three they get all pretty much equal screen time and so you mm-hmm. that's why that we connect with them so much and why if any of them died in three or four it would be heartbreaking except for uh. the fuckers who think that sydney should have died in screen four You've raised an interesting point. I wonder if that's another reason why Screen 3 doesn't play quite as well is because it is unequal amounts of screen time between our three leads. It absolutely, absolutely. I mean, because Sydney is barely in the movie. She's in her house doing the like the oh calls. Yeah, the agoraphobic shit. Until, Which makes like, sense the very end. from a character perspective, but it, it also actively feels like we could not get these actors onto the same stage together. Yeah, I think they had uh, Nev Campbell for 20 days of Scream 3 shoot. Wow. Okay, but, but we're not there. We're not yeah, there. we're not there. We're not there yet. Give yeah, because year. you know what? We need to talk about this fucking masterful chase <sighs> sequence. I literally just got shivers thinking no, about I, this. No, I, I for, for the longest time, my Twitter banner was like gale in is it called an av room it's like a soundproof room i don't know what i call it, it a soundproof room it's like okay. a recording studio and again we we, di- we discussed in our commentary on screen one the camera work that craven does to like give you the like lay out the geography of each like set piece mm-hmm. this one is so good the way the camera like tracks around these barriers so, hey, so uh, obviously, so first, you know, we have, you know, Dewey goes up because they see Ghostface up at the top and like he's like whatever. But then obviously the other Ghostface, because Mickey and Mrs. Loomis are involved in this attack. Oh, you think so? So, well, I, I do think so, just because I don't understand how he could have gotten from the top of the stairs to behind Gale so quickly. Oh, fair. Yeah. Unless he pops up and then just immediately bolts the minute that they see him. Right. But yeah, that's that's a bit of a stretch. But yeah. And so first attacks Gale. She fucking, like, dives over this table as, like, mm-hmm. Ghostface, like, stabs, like, tries to stab her leg and, like, hits the table. And it's it's yeah. such a good near miss, and I love things like that. Yes, and then whacks him in the face with the phone, Ugh. which is a nice callback to all the phone hits to the face in the first film. Yes. And then, again, the score, so, again, goddammit. <laughs> and then we follow Gail running through the halls. And the score for this is really, really intense. This is the, well, again, well, eh, well one of the most suspenseful scenes in the film. Yes. We see her trying all the doors. They're all locked. She gets into a room. Oh, there's no lock on the door. That's fine. She, like, walks around. She doesn't know where to go. She goes back. Oops, ghost face is in the room. So she goes to this soundproof area. And the camera, like, tracks her as she goes, hiding from barrier to barrier. She goes around the corner. It's, like, and just as she goes, boom, ghost face is right over there. It's so intense it's mm-hmm. so well done it's so well shot it's the choreography it's really is tight insane. too right like we we get a sense of where she's going but it also feels like every step she's taking she's squeezing herself there's less and less opportunity for her to escape because she's gonna run out of places to go right and it always it, it reminds me of a stealth i mean this won't mean anything to you it reminds me of a stealth sequence in a video game Hmm. Granted, in these sequences, which rely on not doing any fighting, like you're you're sneaking around, and if an uh, an, AI, an AI character like spots you, then you're like fucked in the, in the levels, you lose the game. Right. And there's a shot because there's a really good shot where um, Gale is like back up against the wall, and then Ghostface is on the other side, and he's also doing the exact same thing, like backed up against the wall. Mm-hmm. It's just really, it's really well shot, and I can't imagine like the choreography of like getting the timing right for all of these moments. Yeah. Yeah, so while Gail is doing all of this, she ultimately ends up locking herself into a room, but of course there's no lock, so she's a bit fucked there. I love how they let you know that there's no lock. She just, she tries to lock it and she just goes, fuck! Yeah, which uh, Wes Craven comments on on the audio commentary, because he's like, how do you convey to an audience that there's no lock? 
how do you tell them that something isn't there on right. screen? You just have to hope that they do. But he he credits Courtney Cox's performance with her being so relatable that all she has to do is be like, fuck, and you know right away, oh, there's no lock. She's well, a lesser slasher movie would have had that character go, oh, there's no lock. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh my God, who am I even talking to? I wish there was a lock here. Fuck. No, and that, that's thing, like, like, and that's what makes some slasher movies so dumb is that they, or, it, it, honestly, just movies in general are so dumb is when characters have to narrate things that they would not possibly say in yeah. real life. Yeah. And yes, you're right. This works very well because of her performance on that. Yeah. So she is in this soundproof room and Dewey comes up to the glass because he can see her and she can't hear him. So even though he's trying to knock and get her attention, she can't hear him. This is when Ghostface comes up, stabs him in the back. He communicates on the mic so that she can. And you get this heartbreaking moment. Mm -hmm. The music is swelling. She is completely silent because we're on his side of the glass. So we can't hear right. her. We just see her screaming. Yeah, but it's so powerful. Apparently, they tried it both ways, and they found that it was nowhere near as effective if you could hear her. That so she is mute and silent and just watching him agonizing. And then Ghostface, of course, now knows exactly where she is, tries to get in the door, and she has to lock herself in by throwing a bunch of cabinets in and then cowering with fear. And, you know, we have the good shot of, like, you know, the, the knife like swinging in through the brief opening in the door. And then also when she, like, goes to it, and then she, like, moves to the right and then ghostface just pops up in the corner or mm -hmm. sorry in the window it's again jump scares but like really effectively done well and we've talked a number of times about how we don't really find these movies scary it is pretty genuinely terrifying when he grabs that bench and just throws it at the yeah. glass and the only thing that saves her is the fact that because it's soundproof it's also shatterproof yeah exactly otherwise gail would be dead and according to IMDb, the one who pops up behind <laughs> Gale and later attacks Dewey is Mrs. Loomis. Um, as just after Dewey was stabbed, the killer constantly waves the knife around while trying to barricade into the room so that he could kill Gale, which is more like Mrs. Loomis, which I don't know the what? reasoning for that. <laughs> oh, that seems not at all like a gendered bullshit right? Mrs. Loomis also said that she wanted revenge of her son's death. The one recording the murders and filming Gale and Dewey was Mickey because there is He's already the another killer Tarantino. behind Gale just parked behind the table, apparently. <laughs> I mean, I could gather that Mrs. Loomis is doing a few more of the murders because she wants revenge on these people who are directly involved in her son's death. And also because Mickey is the one filming because he is the freaky Tarantino film student. Right. But honestly, these IMDb people need to like, I know. fuck off. <laughs> Listeners, though, by all means, give, give your thoughts on like who's who behind the mask in each moment. Yeah, sure. I'm more interested in hearing those perspectives than <laughs> from I smart am people. These anonymous <laughs> idiots from IMDb. <laughs> okay, so that is one of our two fantastic sequences down. Gale is still alive. Dewey, we might think, is down for the count. And he was supposed to be down for the yes. count. He was yes. supposed to be dead. Again. As we've talked about, he's meant to die in every one of these fucking movies, and it's... they always say, no, we can't lose David Arquette. I, I, they just really like David Arquette, honestly. I, I, I think so. he was just like, I'm sure he's a very nice actor, like a very nice man. I'm sure he was just very winsome, and they were like, we just want to bring him back. And he's probably a crowd favorite. Oh, also, since they <laughs> killed Randy, they were like, we got to keep someone around who's likable besides Sydney. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, because as we've, as we've discussed, there's a bunch of people who don't relate to Kale at all. And this scene actually is, well, her apology to Dewey and this like scene where you actually see her legitimately terrified mm -hmm. remedies it goes anything. A long way. I mean, I still like her when she's being a bitch, but yeah, of course. 
like this scene like, humanizes her remedies any kind of issue I might have had with her beforehand. Right. Yeah, it humanizes her very nicely. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Sydney is still being escorted away from campus to a secure location, so we get to see her saying goodbye to Derek, Hallie gets in the car, whatever, and at this point, Derek is then abducted by Lois and Murphy. This is a bait and switch. We're meant to think that Derek was in danger and he might have gotten killed here, but of course, it's actually just his fraternity brothers who hang him on a cross on stage. And cut him. I Okay, so I have always looked at this, and I've tried to figure out, is it girls with lipstick, or is it actual cuts? I think it's cuts, because they are, like, I mean, maybe it's a prop knife, but, like, because uh, mm-hmm. Portia de Rossi is, like, running a knife over his chest. Yeah, but those are from their stage production, which would be fake knives. Oh, maybe that's true. Also, this is the last time we see Rebecca Gayhart and Portia de Rossi in this movie. Yeah, so, red herrings, eh. Leave the movie! <laughs> <laughs> bye they're off hanging out with joel off campus at a coffee shop yeah exactly <laughs> so uh let's get to the other best sequence in this movie oh, at a red light ghostly slits andrew's throat so yes that's the gay one but this is also when um they're like where are you taking us oh if we tell you we have to kill you and then the gay one goes don't ask don't tell <laughs> which i think because this is i mean they would have filmed this in 1997 that's before yeah. Hold on, because Clinton was president in uh, 96. That's when he became president. Don't Ask, Don't Tell, instituted by the Clinton administration on February 28th, 1994, actually. Yeah. Okay. So I guess Clinton was... Okay. That's... Yeah. Okay. <laughs> He's My, your president. Uh, you should wrong. know, man. But yeah. But of course, like you give the gay character the Don't Ask, Don't Tell line, which is just like... I mean, clearly yeah. intentional by Williamson, or maybe yeah. that's a rewrite. I don't know. But it's just kind of... Yeah, that smacks of Williamson. It's just, uh, yeah, I, I don't, I mean, I guess to enforce it, that yes, this is a gay character in this horror movie who is about to die moments after dropping that line. Mm-hmm. And has no other character development. Yeah. Okay, so Ghostface slits his throat, and then he drives off with Richards on the hood of the car before they crash into construction equipment. And I will confess, the first time I saw this movie, I didn't see, so you actually do see the pole, like, go through his head, like, from that perspective. Yes, and apparently, so that is a dummy, obviously, because you're not going to stick a pipe through a real actor, but that was supposed to go through the dummy's chest, and it went through his head instead, and they liked it, so they kept it. I mean, yeah, it's 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 probably it's the glorious death in the movie, um, because mm-hmm. they also show the body twitching later with the pole through his head, oh. which I don't remember seeing on my first watch of this. I mean, obviously, I saw it like later, but um, yeah, it's a real good, and like, just that twitch of him holding the gun and just like his whole body, blah. Yeah, it's real good. So the pipe has gone through his head, but it's also punctured the divider of the police cruiser, which is good because if not, Sydney and Hallie would be fucked because they can't open the doors because it's a police car. And they also can't break the windows, which I guess kind of makes sense. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, this isn't Sarah Michelle Geller, and I know you did last summer with her fucking heels because <laughs> she buzzed that window. Well, I mean, she's got that Slayer strength. That's true. yeah so they peel back the divider they one at a time crawl into the front seat over the killer's unconscious body and then through the driver's window because they also can't open the driver's door okay you're speeding this a little bit so first so sydney goes through and she Mm -hmm. looks it's like a face-to-face with the killer which again craven like teases this out as long as he can oh my god this is masterful. The pacing of this and the way that you keep thinking 
something is going to happen and it doesn't ever happen Mm -mm. no he holds the reveal and she reaches for the mask and boom that honk goes off and it it, because she honks the horn that annoys me it annoys me so much it's like it it works but i'm also like fuck off well because also like you can still take the mask off but okay yeah whatever you get out well hallie literally says don't do that again (laughs) that's actually a really (laughs) good shut the fuck up don't you want to know who the killer is (laughs) Um, so Sydney cannot open the door for Hallie, so Hallie also has to crawl over the oh killer. Oh my god, it's so delicious, because you actually think, okay, fine, they're gonna get away from this, all Sydney has to do is pull open this door, and then she can't, and you have to watch Hallie recreate that exact same sequence, and you're waiting, and you're waiting, and you're waiting. And so, because when she can't open the door, Hallie's like, oh, fuck, no. Yeah. We are all Hallie in this moment. <laughs> There's a tiny piece of music, like as Sydney is actually pulling her out of the car. It's like flutes, uh, where it's like do 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 it's it's so good so like, fucking good this is my favorite this is no i mean and, and this is most people's favorite i still prefer the soundproof room sequence because it's just like i love the choreography of it but the the, the tension and the and the the waiting in this scene definitely like is super super effective mm-hmm. the other thing that i love is that this is another play or callback rather to the first film so remember we had sydney locked in the car she's yeah trying to get out and then the killer sneaks in through the trunk this is the sequel's bigger bolder effort to recreate that see, you know, and like i i don't see that as a rehash you're, you're right it's it is exactly it is taking things that were effective in the first movie and making them like randy said bigger and better mm-hmm. yeah and and honestly this scene like this is an all-time it's this scene gail's scene that you love and mm-hmm. then the helen shivers chase scene it's probably my favorite sequences in contemporary horror. Like I 100% films. agree. I yeah. 100% agree. This should be taught in film schools on like, this is how you create tension and scares. There's no blood in this sequence. No. I There's mean, no honestly, blood in Gale's sequence. Even in Hallie's death, which, I mean, okay, well, we're moving there now. Yeah. But you also don't even see the knife impacts when he's stabbing her. No, and apparently she was only going to be stabbed once, and then Wes Craven realized because of how much tension they had created with this dual car escape that they needed to make it more impactful, otherwise it would be anticlimactic, so that's why she gets stabbed three times. I will confess that I don't love this, so hey, they get out of the car I and they run away. I wanted Hallie to survive, to be honest. Just after all of this, I thought that Hallie was going to be a survivor. I absolutely did too. But I, I do have an issue with the logistics though. So they get away and, you know, Sydney's like, oh, I want to know who it is. And Hallie's like, no, smart people run, let's run away. She goes, no, I'm mm-hmm. sick of running. This is her, you know, stand-up moment. Yeah, man. And then she goes back and Ghostface is already gone. Yeah, and that's immediately when you're like, okay, girls, <laughs> it's time to run. <laughs> but... I don't know, I guess, like, there was, like, a barrier to the side, so he, like, snuck behind the barrier, but then all of a sudden, yeah, jumps out, grabs Hallie, stabs her a bunch, but you don't even see it, you just hear it as you look at Sydney's face, watching Sydney. Sounds like Hallie a dog die. squeak toy. Yeah, it does. It, it's, it's, not the, it's not the best Foley effect. No. We haven't commented at all, but I love this movie's obsession with leather jackets. Oh, there's Everybody so many. has a different colored leather jacket, and they're <laughs> rocking the fuck out. It's because Sydney's is like a tan one, right? Yeah, 
yeah. yeah. Hers is looking good. I would wear that no, one. No, Sydney rocks in this movie, like, in oh, terms yes. of attitude and looks. Mm-hmm. So at this point, Hallie's dead, and Sydney's yeah. on the run. But let's cut back to Gail. So she has finally come out from behind the divider, and she immediately runs into Cotton Weary, and he is covered in blood. Mm-hmm. So he claims that he has found Dewey's body. Gail, unsurprisingly, does not believe him, and she runs the fuck away, because smart people run. And she goes to a payphone, because that was still a thing in 1997. And Debbie Salt is there. Debbie Salt is there. She's trying to file a story. And Gail's like, I've got your fucking story. <laughs> is she in her white pantsuit at this point? She has to be, right? She is, yeah. Okay, th- this pantsuit. Uh, there's a Twitter follower that we have, and it has, their screen name, or their username is Debbie Salt's white pantsuit. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I love Come it. through Debbie Salt's white pantsuit. <laughs> So at this point, Gail suggests that the killer is cotton weary, and we cut away as she makes a phone call to the police. So we're we're now heading into the climax. Sydney is lured to the theater okay. by uh, the music from the Cassandra play. So very much like the first movie, where the last act, well, hey, the last act of Scream One is the party, which takes up about forty five minutes of screen time. <laughs> this finale takes it starts at the ninety four minute mark. That's when she gets into the theater. So basically, the last. 25 minutes of this movie is like the climax i love it because normally our reveal is a slightly long-winded monologue from a killer and then we're out not in scream well maybe in scream 3 but not in scream 2 <laughs> we'll have to see oh man i'm actually getting more and more excited to revisit scream 3 i am too actually <laughs> <laughs> just we have been trash talking it for two hours at this point <laughs> i know <laughs> okay, so in the theater, Sydney ends up going up on stage, and at this point, Derek's body drops from the ceiling, and you think that he's dead. Ghostface arrives on the scene, and we get our first killer reveal, so drink if you thought it was Mickey. I think, obviously, out of the two, this is the more obvious one. Yeah. I mean, in the way that if you think it's probably someone that Sydney knows, mm-hmm. and it's someone that we've seen her interact with, at this point, it's who's left. Derek seems to be dead, which really basically just leaves Mickey, right? I, I feel like people have an issue with his motive because they're like, it's really not realistic. And I'm like, yeah, yeah the movie is. comments on that when Mrs. Loomis says, did you believe that for a second? <laughs> <laughs> I think it is. It's not as no, powerful as Don't Blame the Movies. The trial is not as compelling a reason, but he is obviously insane. two levels of unhinged. Yeah. yeah, he is nuts. I love like the meeting on a serial killer chat room, like mm-hmm. whatever. Which is from the original script. That was how Hallie and Derek got together. Gosh. Gotcha, 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 gotcha. In hindsight, probably good to not have a woman of color be your killer. I mean, maybe. One of the criticisms that regularly gets leveled at the entire Scream franchise is that it's really bad at handling people of color. Right. Which is kind of funny considering that the second film actively tries to address that, but then doesn't. Doesn't really follow through. (laughs) No, because it then just immediately kills the most outspoken person. Yeah. And really doesn't do anything with Hallie. Or Joel. Oh, yeah. I don't like Joel as a character, to be he, honest. He is the least compelling character in this film. Yeah. I wonder if there was ever discussion. No, he would have been killed. But well, I wonder but yeah. if there was ever talk about having him be the killer. I doubt that. That that would have been shitty as fuck. 
Okay, so Mickey at this point, uh, it's revealed that Derek is not actually dead, but Mickey, of course, tries to suggest that Derek is his secret partner, which I think is great. No, it's... it really plays off that first film again by suggesting, oh, Sydney cannot trust people she gets into a romantic relationship with. Yeah, no, it's, it's really, really well done. Honestly, I think it even works on the audience for a brief moment. Oh, 100% it does, because you're just waiting. Like, in um, the original script, this does happen where Hallie is actually up on a... There's, like, a bunch of people dropping from crosses. (laughs) Again, ridiculous. But Hallie just unhooks herself and reveals herself to be a killer. So it's it's playing on this idea that that person is just fabricating. They're not actually a victim. Of course, in this case, Mickey's doing it to fuck with Sydney. And the minute that she starts to back away he just shoots Derek and Derek is dead oh okay I don't like that but that's fine oh sorry no like this is what's happening in the film not oh sorry (laughs) come back come back (laughs) um yeah Derek uh I also love like the little brief moment of like a blood drip you get out of his gun wound Mm-hmm. They have Sydney cover it because they did not like the way that the impact wound looked so that's why she just really quickly covers it up uh that makes sense okay yeah they did augment it in in post to he make does kind of have that bit. dumb line though where it's like i never would have hurt you <laughs> <laughs> i was actually a good boyfriend you did me dirty yeah this is honestly kind of scarring though for her because she uh, oh my but god I, yeah <laughs> uh, but then we get this great mickey line where it's like derek was the kind of guy you want to bring home to mom if you had a mom Fuck Low you! Blow, Mickey. Low blow. <laughs> the banter between like Sydney and the killers in this one is like really, really good. Yeah, because Sydney's really like she's in a compromised position for most of these encounters, but she is still taking no shit from mm-hmm. these people. She does not find Mickey threatening at all. You can see she's yeah. looking for a way to murder this fucker the minute he is revealed. Yeah, no, she 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 is very much like I'm on top of this, which again is such a such a such a refreshing Baller. angle for your final girl. Oh, 100%. Yeah. So Mickey is going on and on about his explanation or rather all about his motivation and I do like the meta textual elements here like obviously they're on a stage he is performing but he even likens the trial to being a theatrical experience. Mm-hmm. Well and I guess too because this is uh, I don't when was the OJ stuff I know was in the 90s I don't know the exact year but like that also probably because he mentions Cochran as one of his potential defenders. So I'm sure I think OJ a, was 94 or 95, if I'm not yeah, mistaken. Yeah, so this is probably a direct reaction to, mm-hmm. like, that media frenzy of, like, a killer. Yeah, yeah. He's name-dropping famous people. It's not out of the realm of possibility. <laughs> no, absolutely not. Yeah, it's not as compelling as that first film, but if you look at the way that the first two films present the media fascination with murder and the use of horror films as proxies for explaining away why people commit violent crimes. It's actually very prescient for where we would be for just a year and a half after this movie is Columbine, where all violent movies yeah. and video games get blamed for Ooh, real life violence. That, that will be a heavy discussion for Scream 3. Yeah, because Scream 3 lives in the shadow of Columbine, Columbine. and yeah. you can see them actively pushing back like uh, don't associate us with that yeah exactly yeah okay so sydney is done with this bullshit and she's got derek's fraternity letters 
she fucking lets loose on Mickey. She whips him in the face with those Greek letters. She starts kicking and punching him. She's pulling him into columns. <laughs> she has that good line, too, where she's like, he mentions Billy, and she's like, Billy was a sick fuck, just like you. Yeah, but I do love the line that she has before she whips him in the face, too, where she goes, you're forgetting the one thing about oh. Billy Loomis. And he's like, what's that? And she's like, I fucking, I fucking killed, killed him. him. <laughs> <laughs> like, yes, you did, Sydney. Yes, you did. Yes, queen. <laughs> oh, my God. So how can you not enjoy this movie? It's so fun. Right? Well, I think this is actually one of the big reasons why Sydney gets stepped up in the pantheon of final girls. Like, oh, yeah. Nancy from Nightmare on Elm Street original flavor is obviously your de facto one. Right. But if you think about it, like, the way that Sydney handles herself in these movies, she is badass. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. There is no denying it. So yeah, so they fight, blah, 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 and they kind of end up at a detente. She has whipped him, he has whipped her a little bit, and then all of a sudden Derek's body gets raised up into the ceiling, and mm -hmm. Mickey says, oh, who could that be? My secret other person who's been helping me. And then Gail comes <laughs> That's a direct quote, that's my secret other person. <laughs> yes. Line for line, I know every word of dialogue. <laughs> I do love <laughs> this kind of fake out with Gail because that's obviously what it is. And it, mm -hmm. for a split second, you're like, yeah. oh, shit. Yeah. And then you think, no, it couldn't possibly be Gail. And Craven just immediately brings out <laughs> Laurie Metcalf as Miss Loomis. And again, going back, I have my notes. This white pantsuit. It is perfect. <laughs> <laughs> ah, classic horror costuming. So good. Well, also because she's wearing white against like what is you know, the ghost face is black. I mean, I'm sure it's not intentional. It's like hot, um, like you know, comparison to that. But you know, it's mm. a good like little um, oh fuck juxtaposition. Yeah, and really, it distinguishes Mrs. Loomis from everybody else so clearly, right? Like, she really stands out. She is the true villain of this. It's hard to watch the Sunelli and not feel like Mickey is a bit of a joke, because mm -hmm. he is then just immediately disposed of. Well, but I mean, that's... I don't mind that, because do you no. want Mickey to stick around further for this climax? No. You know, he kicks things off. We get a little bit of action to get the pulse, the adrenaline going. And then it's like, no, but let's really talk about what's going on here. Like, he's an idiot. Yeah. He is the he's fall guy. Yeah, he's the patsy. Miss Loomis has been in control of this the whole fucking time. And she is the real villain of this movie. So what do you think about the critique, though, of like, oh, it's un it's unrealistic that people wouldn't recognize her. They give Sydney the throwaway line where it's like, oh, this is 60 pounds and a lot of work later. I buy it because I, I think, don't think it's hilarious. I love that line. I think it's great. And I, I if there was one person that should recognize her, because Sydney hasn't really seen her at all. Nope. They deliberately made sure to never put them anywhere near each other in any of these scenes. Yes. And I, I, maybe it should be Gail, but because Gail is like, I don't think, I mean, even though she's a quote unquote good reporter, I don't think she would have made that connection because she's so superficial. Well, and it's important to remember that when she's still posing as Debbie Salt earlier in the film, she says, I attended one of your seminars last year. So if Gail did yeah. make the connection, she would she would think it was from that. Because she says, I thought you looked familiar. Yes. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes total sense. And obviously Mrs. Loomis has like covered her tracks well in this regard. Oh yeah. Well, because as, as we learn, she's very sane. She's just getting revenge. <laughs> yeah. It's good old-fashioned revenge. And then we get this awesome back and forth between her and Sydney, which... Mm -hmm. I will not lie to you. 
I prefer this finale to the finale of the first movie. I just think the banter... I mean, okay, as a whole, yes. I think the finale of the first one is better, but I think that the banter between Mrs. Loomis and Sydney is more entertaining and just delightful to... I mean, maybe it's just because it's bitchy. (laughs) It is very bitchy. Yeah, so she explains that obviously she has done all of this because... uh... Oh, wait, and also because she kills Mickey and then Gail shoots... uh, And Mickey shoots Gail as he, like, quote-unquote, almost dies. Yeah, exactly. So I always love the fact that Gail immediately tries to go for his gun, and that's when he shoots her, and then she falls into the orchestra pit, he slides down the column, we get that gorgeous close-up shot of Of his his bloodshot eye. Yeah, Mm. it's good. Yeah, and then and then we go into her her motivation, uh, which is good old fashioned revenge. She's doing this because Sydney killed her son, her good boy. And at this point, Sydney realizes, okay, I'm not going to be able to just fight my way out of this one. Yeah. So she has to play along with Mrs. Loomis's delusions. So she says, yeah, he was a good boy. And you know what? You were a bang up mom. You did a great job. Was that a negative disparaging remark about my son? About my Billy? (laughs) (laughs) Lori Lori Metcalf's performance in this finale is just, I mean, it's like, I think she, it's like seven minutes before, like of of this, before she like actually dies. It's wonderful. It's so good and unhinged. It's really good. Coming off of Roseanne, nine years of Roseanne and then doing this. Mm -hmm. Oh. Yeah, she had just wrapped Roseanne, and it must have been so weird to have been a fan of that show and then seen her in this role, because it is not at all like her character on that well, show. And honestly, it reminds me, Scream 4's reveal of Emma Roberts, and like that strategic casting of her, mm-hmm. reminds me of what they did with Laurie Metcalf here, because, you know, with Emma Roberts, before she was in Scream 4, she was a Nickelodeon girl. Like, she yeah. wasn't Ryan Murphy's bitch queen yet. Scream 4 started that for her. So yeah. that's why you don't suspect Emma Roberts in that movie. And it kind of works the same way here. I don't even know what to say. As I mentioned earlier, I never it never even occurred to me that she was a suspect in that way. Mm-hmm. But I think it's really clever. It plays on Kevin Williamson's awareness of Mrs. Voorhees as a killer. She's got the similar short haircut to betsy from friday the 13th the original yeah oh that i mean obviously it's an homage and like they reference you know mrs Voorhees in this yeah. movie i didn't even think about the hair being like an homage which is correct mm-hmm. this is just a great finale west Craven actually gives her major major props for being able to hold the level of energy that she has because he says it's such a risk because you're right, this is a very long scene and a long explanation of just a person going off about why they committed a bunch of murders. It could have been really boring. And Wes Craven says it only works because she is such a good actress. Well, it could have been boring or it could have been stupid. Like this yeah. could have come across and it, it borders on camp a little bit, but it, it doesn't cross that line because of her performance. And I also what I love about this finale is it gets sloppy, like once Sydney goes back there and she's like chopping like the stuff to like drop things on Mrs. Loomis. Mm-hmm. Hey, there's a really good shot of, the, of her looking through the peephole, and you see Sydney like has this like maniacal. <laughs> she looks deranged. <laughs> she looks crazy. Just and she just she has this like maniacal laugh. She goes, she goes, ha, 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 and then she just keeps chopping at these things. Yeah, well, because at this point she's again watched all of her friends die. She's mm-hmm. lost another fucking boyfriend, and she's got nothing left to lose. Yeah exactly it's amazing yeah it's basically two unhinged women 
going at each other, which of course is why you and I fucking love it. 100%. (laughs) Now, we do have this weird thing with like the fake stage bricks falling on Mrs. Loomis, which again, those would have been like styrofoam. They wouldn't be heavy. Mm -hmm. But then of course we have Mrs. Loomis jump out as another jump scare at Sydney. And there's this shot as Sydney runs away and you just see Laurie Metcalf again, deranged crazy face, like holding this knife running after her. And it Mm -hmm. is so good. (laughs) I do love the fact even that Sydney uses one of those prop styrofoam bricks to prevent herself from being stabbed in the face. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's and, like you see like a piece of it like chip off because it hits like the corner exactly. Which yeah, I, ah, man, the fight, the choreography in this movie is so good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Craven's direction is really energetic. Like this part is moving and shaking. It's happening so quickly, and it feels really like anything could happen. And at the moment when Miss Loomis gets the upper hand, enter Cotton Weary. Yes. So Cotton arrives. You could make the argument that it's not great that Cotton ends up sort of saving the day. I'm here. okay with it, actually. I'm totally fine with this. I think it it's paying off two films worth of groundwork, and mm-hmm. it's really addressing this idea that he has not just given her the out, Sydney rather, to do the Diane Sawyer interview, but also that they've come full circle. He is now completely involved in the murders, and it's up to the person who falsely accused him and sent him away to jail to decide, am I going to save this person's life, and I'm, am I going to become a hero? Yeah, uh, I love Mrs. Loomis playing with him. I love that she sent you to prison for a year, but then she like hides. But behind then she powers behind Sydney. Like I'm giving you this out, but also don't shoot me. <laughs> but it's a really funny. Like it's not like a smooth. Like she's like out there, like poking her head out, and then boom, it just hides. But like it's so funny. Oh, I love it. And then of course you get like the who did he shoot when he pulls the trigger because mm-hmm. they both go flying backwards. Of course, apparently they bash their heads into one another very hard in real life. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> Ouch. Yeah, so of course, Cotton has actually shot Miss Loomis. Good thing he's a great shot. I guess he's been practicing? I mean, they were like two feet away. It's fine. <laughs> it's also really funny that he only takes the shot when Sydney says, that Can... Diane Sawyer interview, consider it done. Consider it done. Also, though, he shoots Mrs. Loomis like in the throat. It's not even like a headshot. Yeah. Well, of course, because we need to save the headshot for later. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So, okay, so Gail pops out. She sure does for one last scare. And the three survivors, they stand over Miss Loomis's body. At this point, we get, of course, the killer reversal. Mickey jumps up. And I do also love that Gail says, give me that gun. So it's her and Sydney who have the Mm -hmm. gun. And Cotton is just kind of hanging out in the background. So Sydney and Gail go off on mickey (laughs) they shoot him so many times it's such a good like an honest reaction to what that would be yeah like what the fuck Mm -hmm. and then we don't get as good of a line as the first time but sydney just says yep just in case and she shoots miss Loomis in the forehead and it's also it it shows that shot like like it shows the bullet impact it's actually kind of cool it's good you get a little head shake from laurie metcalf as the bullet goes in Ah, yes. So that is our climax. Outside, Joel is waiting to prep Gail for her story, but she abandons the mic so that she can go and spend time with Dewey, who is revealed to still be alive, miraculously. Mm -hmm. And Sydney emerges into the daylight, and she's surrounded by reporters, but she gives the credit over to Cotton, and then she just walks away into solo life. Once again, the survivor, but she's got literally nobody. Yeah. Yeah, it's, um, it's, yeah, that's, that, that's Scream 2. 
Not a scream fucking two. I will say, um, I, I actually love this. Um, so I, if you stick through the credits, once it starts doing the pictures of the cast, um, it mm-hmm. does this um, really funny, like, punky version of I Think I Love You. Yeah. And I love it. I think, I think really I love funny. you. Yeah, apparently they had submitted they had submitted a couple of different variations of different songs and they couldn't figure out how to use them. And then when they heard that, they thought, you know what? This embodies the spirit of the sequel, which is just a little bit more fun and funky. And they mm-hmm. thought it made a great closing credit song. It does. And it's a perfect movie. Uh, despite all the flaws we pointed out, it is still perfect. And if you don't think so, <laughs> it's fine. Then you've listened to us talk for nearly two and a half hours about a movie that you don't think is great. <laughs> I know. Oh, God. I I hope this episode was worth it for you guys. I was so happy to talk about this, but I was also intimidated, as I said at the beginning of the episode. But um, I hope that if y'all were ever on the fence about Scream 2, that you will look at this movie with a newfound respect. Mm-hmm. That is my hope of what comes out of this episode. Yeah. Yeah, we've waited a full year to do this. I remember how excited we were when we finished the first Scream episode and we thought, next year we get to do number two, our favorite. Yep. <sighs> so, yeah, I guess I hope it was also worth the wait for everybody. Yeah. Um, I know there was much discussion on queer content, but you know what? There was more in here than I thought we were going to talk about with that damn FBI agent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's his really big role. Yeah. We'll wait until we get to talk about Roman a little bit more in Scream 3. Ooh, I like that. Because you want to talk Mama's Boy. Pansy-ass Mama's Boy. Mm-hmm. It's a different variation of the same idea. <laughs> but yeah, any any lingering thoughts before we close things up? Um, I think this movie still holds up really well. If anything, it's almost aged a little bit better in my mind because mm-hmm. a lot of the cast members have become more famous. But I love the way that it builds and expands on the great framework that Kevin Williamson and Wes Craven set up in the first film. And I think it is. To me, it's my definition of a perfect sequel. It's doing everything right in Mm -hmm. terms of building on what the first film did. It's giving you what you want, but it's giving you enough new. And honestly, the climax is everything for me. Uh, Two fantastic set pieces and a fantastic climax. I agree. Um, And I know that there are people that are on our side about Scream 2. Not many people. Netflix Canada, come through. <laughs> but, oh God, dude, Nep- yeah, y'all, go, that Netflix Canada account, holy fuck, they agree that Scream 2 is the best one. It is perfect. Clearly, it's a gay man running that that account. One of them, yeah. <laughs> uh, and just so y'all know, like, Scream 1 and 2 are both A's, like five out of five films for me. Mm-hmm. Scream 4 is an A- minus or a 4.5, maybe close to a 5. And then Scream 3 is like a B-, minus, like 3.5 for me. I mean, they're all great. We're talking about fractions of percentages of differences, but yeah, I think Scream 3 probably had the hardest job of all four of them. And I agree that, I mean, Scream 3 is a no, like, Scream 3 is probably honestly more of a C, but because of all the trouble it had, I almost cut it more slack. Yeah. But then you look at this one, which had even more trouble. <laughs> well, uh, perhaps we'll talk about it one day. One day. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, again, and this, that's why y'all look at this movie and then look at Black Christmas, which had similar issues with its rush production schedule, but how this one wasn't butchered um, in post-production. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Um, but yeah. Okay. Well, that'll wrap up Scream 2. But um, before we announce what we're covering next week, um, if you want to reach us on Twitter, you can reach us at our hash, uh, at our um, account, HorrorQueers, which is just at HorrorQueers. Um, you can email us at HorrorQueers at gmail.com, or you can check out our Facebook group, which is just um, HorrorQueers fans. Is that what it is? I have no idea. I don't know. Just search for horror quizzes. It's there. 
<laughs> uh, if you have two seconds, head over to iTunes and leave us a rating or review. It's the new year. We could use some new reviews. Uh, you know, oh, that's great. Lovely. If you want to get more content, please visit our Patreon page. Of course, like we said, we have our Scream audio commentary. We will have episodes this month on The Grudge and Underwater. Um, mm-hmm. That is patreon.com slash horrorqueers. And uh, Joe, mm-hmm. what are we covering next week? All right. So if you haven't figured out, there's a bit of a through line from the films we covered in our first year with the films that we're covering in our second year. So last year around this time, I believe you and I took a trip to Amsterdam that didn't end well. Mm-hmm. I feel like we should give it a second try. So let's check out Hostel Part 2, oh. shall we? I'm also like, I've been waiting for this episode for a long time. <laughs> Listeners, I think Hostel 2 is a legitimately good movie. It is Eli Roth's best film. Mm-hmm. It's very queer. Very queer. In a good way, at least from what I remember. But I do want to say, I think I mentioned in one of our recent episodes that we had trouble finding guests for some episodes. Mm-hmm. This is one of them. <laughs> this is the one. We could <laughs> not get anyone to guest on this episode because I think people have it in their mind that it's a bad movie. And we're going to change your fucking minds. (laughs) Yeah, we're going to have a lot to say. We're, again, going to be talking about things that we probably addressed in that first film. So if you haven't listened to our episode on Hostel in a while, maybe go back and give that one a re-listen beforehand. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, we're also going to be kicking off a bunch of lesbian content. So come in to hear two gay men talk about Hostel Part 2. Love it. And we'll see y'all next week. So on that note, I think we can cross out Scream 2. Yes, and cross out Horror Queers. Disgusting Podcast Network, home of creepy, more disturbing, and terrifying creepy pastas, SCP archives, weekly full cast storytelling, horror queers, genre commentary from an LGBTQ perspective, and the Boo Crew. Horror centric interviews. Listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcasts.